Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsway. And I'm Zane Zero. And today, we're coming together to talk about the winter season. We've just started to get a little bit into spring, both in real life and in anime. But, you know, with all of the shows that we were watching now over, or at least at halfway points for the ones that are continuing on to this core, thought it was time to get together and just talk about what we've thought about the shows from last season. And I liked a lot of these. I think that, you know, there were some surprises in there and some that I expected to be good. But overall, I'm pretty positive about this season that just finished. Yeah, same here. I liked pretty much everything I followed through on. It was a lot of really good stuff, and it's uh, it was nice to have such a high-quality season. Yeah, and a lot of... There's a lot of diversity in the shows that we watched and how they sort of succeed and failed comedies and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. But first, we have just a little bit of news to catch up on since it's been a week since we recorded the last one. First off, uh, not only did we get the Netflix release of Violet Evergarden um, the day that the last episode aired in Japan, but we're also seeing a new project in process from uh, KyoAni. It says a completely new work for the anime, so my assumption is that a movie is coming out of it, but with KyoAni, it's impossible to tell with some of this stuff what sort of like multimedia kind of stuff they're trying to plan for. That could be interesting. I Personally, Violet Evergarden wasn't entirely my jam, but for the people who seem big on it, I'm excited that they have more to look forward to. Especially after how long it took for us just to get the uh, Violet Evergarden anime proper. I'm trying to think now, has has any of Kiwani's light novel stuff been released in English? I don't think it has. I don't think so either. Huh, I wonder if that's ever a plan for them to bring those over. I guess with, like, light novels sort of becoming a bigger thing in America, with, like, these, like, online retailers doing translations and stuff, maybe we'll see some of that stuff come through. Since they are doing their own, like, publishing thing, it might be interesting to see. So that's happening. Um, The heavy metal idol group Baby Metal is getting its own graphic novel. That rules. Not manga. (laughs) A graphic novel from, like, being made in the U.S., Yes, that rules. (laughs) I just want to make sure that people understood. It is called Apocrypha, The Legend of Baby Metal, um, being published by Z2 Comics. And and yeah, it's in collaboration with the the group's producer, Koba Metal, and the Hollywood production company Amuse Group USA. And it's supposed to come out in October. (laughs) Baby Metal themselves describe the story as discover the myth of the worldwide musical sensation Baby Metal. Tasked with defeating the forces of darkness and division, the metal spirits must travel through a variety of eras of time, assuming different forms and identities. What we are seeing is not the baby metal of the present, it's the original story based on baby metal you've never heard before. The log-headed metal spirits apocrypha of the metal resistance will emerge. This sounds like the best thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so... I didn't realize this. Apparently, they were on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to promote uh, their latest album. And that album, Metal Resistance, went on to rank in the U.S. Billboard's Top 200 for its first week. Cool. And uh, it's the first time a Japanese artist has broken into the top 40 in 53 years. So, wow. Congratulations to Baby Metal. Genuinely. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Um, 
They are doing a world tour, I believe, right now, and currently in the U.S. Nice. And it's weird. It's mostly, like, Middle America, like, sort of stuff. Like, not the coasts where you'd think that that would be more prominent. Like, you look at sort of, like, the Miku Expos, they're all done on the West Coast, and maybe, like, in Texas. But, like, this is, like, they're going to Kansas, the Georgia, North Carolina. Very strange. But maybe that's where they know that the real fans are. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that, that they know where the real spirit of metal is. <laughs> Did you? You've seen that like Facebook um, thing where Rob Zombie was hanging out with Baby Metal, right? Because they opened for uh, they opened for him before. Yes, I have. Yeah, the one where a bunch of old men are like, "Oh, I can't believe you would be friends with Baby Metal. They're ruining metal, and all he does is like horribly own all of his fans for doing that." Yeah, Rob Zombie's cool. Yeah, man. Look, he knows what the, where the future lies. Yeah. It's, it's just such a wild thing. I'm I'm glad Baby Metal exists. I'm glad they're getting a fucking uh, graphic novel based off of them. Same? Extremely. <laughs> this is a very peculiar type of, like, crossover appeal that you don't see a lot in, like, Japanese music, for sure. So it is cool that they're getting, like, a recognition in this way. It's awesome. It's, like, definitely one step above, like, all the times that, like, Ore Ska Band was in, uh, the Warped Tour. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> now, in Saturn News, um, plenty of, uh, discussion has been around this, but a director and Studio Ghibli co-founder, uh, Isao Takahata passed away earlier this week. Uh, at the time we were recording, it would have been April 5th. And that's unfortunate. So, um, Takahata was like the director of movies such as Grave of the Fireflies, Only Yesterday, Pompoko, and My Neighbor the Yamadas. And then, uh, his last directorial duty was on The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which was in 2013. So that's kind of sad that those are a lot of, like, Miyazaki gets a lot of credit within Studio Ghibli for sort of the big movies, but these still are very, like, prominent films for Studio Ghibli. You know, these are these are big ones that a lot of people remember, especially Grave of the Fireflies. It's sad to hear that he is passed. Yeah. Because all that leaves is uh, grumpy old Miyazaki still, like, clinging to his fake retirement. Please, retire, please. <laughs> he can't. He's, he just keeps getting so bad when he sees an the anime industry as it is today. He just can't stop. Someone needs to stop him. <laughs> His son tried. No one liked his movie, so he had to keep coming back. Ugh. It's a shame. And then, in... I mean, it's not sad news, but... Uh, that <laughs> I learned today that there is a Two Love Root Darkness game app that's ending its service in May. And I only bring this up because it's even, like, more clearly, like, a money grab sort of thing. And, like, a pandering sort of thing than a lot of gotcha stuff. Because what it is, is it's literally a game... <laughs> Where you pay real money to buy outfits for the two Love Rue girls and then take pictures of them. I just feel like that's, it's the most direct I've ever seen a mobile game be like, we'll just give you what you want. Why? But I'm almost surprised it, it only lasted for a year before its service ended. Just a weird thing. Man, mobile games are crazy. Don't I know it. Or mobile money makers. I guess not even all of them have to be games. I guess the only other, like, big thing is that uh, the Japanese government is now trying to get its um, internet providers to to block access to um, 
to like pirate manga sites. Oh. Yeah, I think they reported an, an estimate that they lost 400 billion yen worth of sales over so, like a five month period from last year as like these pirate sites are getting bigger. Wow. So it's pretty nuts. And they don't, I don't think they have like a net neutrality sort of thing like we do. So they are specifically talking to, because these also aren't all like Japanese sites. Like some of these are Chinese sites that are getting through and being able to do that. So they need to kill it at the source by just making it so that they block all of the, uh, all access through it through their internet providers. Huh. And it's hard to say like how much that is accurate, but I think that in terms of sort of this piracy, it's definitely going to affect Japan more if Japanese people are pirating manga than, like, the American audience, since a lot of the stuff that ends up getting pirated is stuff that doesn't come over anyways. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it, it it's hard to say, but 400 billion yen's not a, not a number to sneeze at, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I don't know if Japan has ever had sort of big, you know, like, access blocks sort of like that, so... We'll see how that turns out. But yeah, it's kind of weird to think about, especially in the the wake of sort of like net neutrality talks in America. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's really all the big news that's happening. So let's cut to the chase. Anime. Anime. There's a lot of it. And we watched some. So let's talk about the shows that we watched. And the first one I want to open up with is one that both of us watched to completion. Fairly recently, just as catch up. <laughs> that is uh, the Ancient Magus Bride. And man, did the Ancient Magus Bride really end on a... <laughs> not a downer, but a very heavy arc. Yeah. Yeah, that was some shit. Yeah, and like... As much as I appreciate it as sort of like... Building up characters, especially ones that sort of like... They're building up... um Joseph, you know, he's a he is a villain character, but they they do give justification to the things he does, not as sort of like to make him pitiable or to make him sort of like, you know, try to say, oh, he wasn't he's not a, you know, a bad person still, but something to expand his character and explain why he is the way he is in a way that is like it was pretty compelling. I, I liked the I liked the story of Joseph a lot. Yeah, that was some real messed up stuff to watch. Yeah. So, okay. So, Ancient Mage's Bride, when we cut off the the first season, um... Chisei had just made her wand, I'm pretty sure? Yeah, she had just put together the wand, and then nothing good happened from there. I really wish Chisei could just get a break. <laughs> like... Chisei literally doesn't get, like, a day off at any of this. It's always one catastrophe after another. I just want her to be happy once. I mean, she seemed pretty happy at the end of the show? Right, but, like, it's still, like, <laughs> why can't- We don't get a lot of episodes where it's just like, Oh, Chisei gets to enjoy the magical world as it is. Something terrible is always happening. Look, magic is fucked up. And the show is just giving you a warning about that. I mean, you're not wrong. Because <laughs> we sort of had the, the... In the beginning, we sort of had the the bit where uh, Chisei, through a surge of magic, sort of, like, overloads. <laughs> and so uh, she has to be taken to the fairy world, where she sort of 
This is a thing that happens a lot in the second core, where it's about Chisei's development in self-respect more than anything else, sort of like recognizing that when she keeps saying things like, it doesn't matter what happens to me, it's about the people around me and who I can affect, that she is, in a sense, like lying to herself because she she does not have a lot of self-worth and trying to sort of build that up within her to sort of understand that she has been through bad things, but it's about moving past and understanding that the things that have happened to her are not her fault. So she doesn't need to shoulder all of this blame. Yeah, a lot of this was Chisei slowly regaining her will to live, as she herself says towards the end. And also a development of Chisei and Elias's um, relationship, because it, it really starts to discuss sort of like the idea that both of them are looking at each other in very different ways. And it comes from sort of that dichotomy of the human world and the the magic world and the way that they look differently at life and relationships and things like that. And it creates this mismatch, this uh, mismatch that ultimately leads them to break apart for a while and kind of have to re-examine the way that they they relate to each other. Yeah, but there's also parts of them that wind up being the same, which is what brought them back to each other. Like, the way that both of them want to be appreciated for who they are instead of just being, like, in Elias's case, some type of whatever the heck he is, and in Chise's case, a, a slay beggar. <laughs> right, so it, it ultimately comes down to them getting together because of that. But, like, we have this, the short arc with um, Chise and Stella, where sort of... We, we meet more of the people who live around Elias, and we meet this girl, Stella, who, because of a wandering, like, demon, she yells like, oh, I wish uh, you, my brother, were never my brother. And so he gets kidnapped away, and Elias and Chisei have to work with Stella to sort of get him back. And again, it's about misunderstanding, it's about relationships, and, and that, and that's where we see more of that develop, and this leads to... Elias getting, like, insanely jealous that Chisei ends up having friends? Yeah. Because he doesn't have this distinction between, like, d the types of relationships that humans have and the way they interact with each other. So he becomes insanely jealous, and after, uh, <laughs> after a mission in which they try to, um get back a dragon who's being sold on the black market thanks to uh Joseph's meddling in his trying to build a um a, a, like a chimera basically Elias tries to kill Stella to to give Chise the chance to live and that's where sort of the big break happens is Elias assumes that first of all that Stella is tearing them apart and that he he has to do this for Chise without her knowing because she's too selfless to suggest a solution to her cursed problem. And so it gets kind of uncomfortable in that moment and sort of like how it is a scary sort of relationship thing going on, but it's done to show that this is a bad thing and that, you know, Elias needs to learn about this and sort of understand the nuance of human relationship in a way that, like, other magical people don't understand either. Like, when um, 
he's talking to the the king and queen of the forest and they they're sort of like why don't you just kidnap her back and take care of her that's how we do it in magic world and he's like no i have to try to understand it from her perspective and you know do the things that she would want me to do yeah it a lot of this really gives you the feeling of the alienness of Elias to the human world. Right. It it really you could fall into the like a trap like partway through of like oh he's he's sort of human because he does talk about sort of like developing emotions and stuff like that. But it's very clear here that there's still such this huge divide between humans and magic. I guess there is one, like, nice episode in between where um, Alice and uh, Chise go out for Christmas to buy gifts for their uh, for their teachers. Yeah, that was a nice episode. That was before everything terrible happens. Right, it was, it was cute and it gives development to Alice because while we do have a little bit of information about Alice and... Renfred, I believe his name is. Yeah, Renfred. Yeah. We we have a little bit of information about them, but this helps to develop sort of like how Alice got to where she was and sort of the things that have happened there. And it does have sort of this this parallel, more or less, to Chise and how she was picked up by Elias and things like that. And so it's it's a good like character moment where it's about not only like learning something new about these other characters, but then developing, you know, the main cast just through the different ways that they've sort of, like, grown up out of this less-than-ideal environment. Yeah, I I think that's one point in common that all of the characters in- that all of the central characters in this show have, that they all have some kind of trauma bound to them, and their relationships through other people are helping them slowly heal through that trauma. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing that's going on with this story. I think, for the most part, it succeeds. It's just sometimes, like, hard to watch because of how brutal it can get in its depictions of stuff. Yeah, in in a sometimes scarily realistic ways, too. Yeah, because, and, and like, because the last episodes is sort of like, Chisei is, in a way, forced to relive her childhood trauma, but through the ability to sort of fully look at the situation for what it is instead of how her memory is of the situation it comes to this point where she sort of realizes the the discrepancies between what she remembers and what is true about her her recollections and the way that she grew up and how that's affected her right and the like one of the things that she points out during that whole bit is that this is, like, the first time she can actually remember the happy times she had with her family since that happened. Right, and and it's so, it's such a, you know, it's a chance for not only the character, but the viewer to sort of reinterpret how things happened with them, and not to, again, like with Joseph, it's not to excuse the things that happened, but to to put the perspective on it that sort of makes it a little more bittersweet instead of just, like, purely evil or purely bad. Yeah, like, I think one of the strongest parts of that whole bit was towards the end when Chise says, I can't forgive you, not yet, but at least I can now start to move on. Right, that was, it's it's a very important thing, and sort of, like, that becomes the, sort of, the conflict between Joseph and Chise at the end is sort of, 
they realize that they are very similar to each other in that they were mistreated a lot as they grew up, but it's the things that they have done since then that define who they are now. And so Chise has finally given this chance to move forward past this and sort of believe in herself again and, you know, her abilities. And Joseph still hasn't gotten over what his whole life has been about. And the thing is, like, so much of the way that Joseph has turned out is out of his own accord. A lot of what Chise's done is completely out of her ability to have changed it at the time. And sort of, you know, the, it's it's sort of like, you know, finding yourself stuck in a hole versus digging it yourself kind of thing. How ironic, given that Joseph was a grave digger. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it leads to a, a nice conflict at the end where sort of like, they maybe come to a little bit of an understanding, but the idea is sort of that um, Chise and Joseph are now like connected in a way. So Joseph is going to sort of reduce the curse that Chise has, that she's not going to die so soon. And Chise is going to use this to help, sort of help them both move forward through their, through their trauma. Maybe we should actually mention what the curse was so people aren't a little lost. Right. So if you haven't been, if you didn't watch through the show, the, the thing about Joseph is before this, there are um, references to Cartophilus, who is um, within like religious myth, a, a wandering Jew who, who did something uh, untoward to Jesus as he was going to the uh, cross. And because of it, has ended up um, stuck living forever, basically in like eternal pain. So Joseph, as a young child, I think like a thousand years ago, it's, it's a long time ago. Uh, he meets Cartophilus and sort of tries to, tries to, to heal him, but to no avail, realizing sort of that this man is cursed forever. And Joseph is the child of a gravekeeper, and I believe he is the child of a witch as well. So he is bullied and sort of ostracized from his community, um, for this relationship. And his hope through this whole thing is that eventually he'll be able to do something useful. He'll be able to, save Cartophilus and be able to move away from where he lives and sort of be able to find happiness somewhere else. And eventually he realizes that the way it works is Cartophilus is basically never going to get better because of his curse. He is just like, you know, cursed to never die, but constantly like decompose. So what Joseph does is he, through some kind of fucked up ritual, kind of like how, um, Chise and um and Joseph in the anime sort of like switch eyes and like body parts as sort of like an ex uh like an exchange for compatibility. He enters into Cartophilus's body and starts like traveling around the world, killing people, sort of replacing his body parts with ones that are working in order to try and create a body that no longer hurts that allows him to sort of um, move forward from all his suffering, but finds that no matter what he does, he is always going to be um, messed up forever. Yeah, and along the way, he loses his sense of self, and he can no longer tell if he's Joseph or Cartophilus anymore. It's, it's the two of them as one person. Right, and so this has been going on for hundreds, maybe a thousand years, and so... He can't remember what he's done. He doesn't understand why he must be 
cursed for things he can no longer remember. And sort of we see the degradation of his psyche over the, all these years that he's forced to live with pain and suffering that he doesn't understand why or how it's happening, basically. And then the other side of this is that uh, the reason why Cartophilus, Joseph, what have you, captured Chisei is because uh, while trying to retrieve one of the dragons that was captured on the black market, it went completely out of control and its magic went wild. And the only way Chisei could stop it was by absorbing some of the dragon's magic into it herself, which gave her a fucked up dragon hand that is cursed to kill her to shorten her already short lifespan. And that is why Cartophilus wants it. Yeah, it's it's brutal. Yes. But yeah, I I think by the end, sort of the way that they've recon- recontextualized all of these relationships and shown that like, again, it's it's not that these things are okay, but that we learn to move forward from them and come to understand others better because of the conflicts we have. I think one of the important parts is that Chisei doesn't actually kill Cartophilus. She sends him to sleep for some amount of mm-hmm. time to give him some reprieve from all this pain and suffering he's been feeling for the past millennia. Yeah. And, like, there's a great bit with uh, Chisei and Elias where Elias sort of says, like, uh, from now on, I'll never do anything that you don't specifically say you want me to do. And Chisei points out that's not what this relationship thing is about, it's that if we come to a point where we don't agree with each other, we need to be able to discuss our problems and work through them to find a compromise. Right. I think that's sort of like the theme of the story is sort of like, you know, it's not about everything being perfect. It's about finding the compromise, finding the the way forward when these sorts of things happen. Right, right. I Yeah, and they do eventually reach an understanding after this whole ordeal is over that they actually talk it out and work out the differences that cause them to separate for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it um, as a whole. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, as did I. It was a, a, very, a very good show, very bittersweet and melancholy at times, but also kind of wondrous and mysterious when it wasn't being that. Right, for sure. Yeah, I, I liked I liked this, and I'm glad that it got you know I, I'm glad that it got the adaptation because I think it does some nice things with the ability to be animated. I'm just kind of glad it ended where it did on a point where even if it doesn't get another season, it feels like it could end there and it would be fine. Right, it's sort of like it it's the end of an arc. You know, we we get the idea that these characters have evolved in some way and they can move forward even without us being able to see it. And we still get sort of a closure to who they are, because we we get just the inkling that they've moved forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Then, next up, uh, this is one that's continuing on next season, but let's talk about the first half of Record of Grand Crest War. Alright, so, uh, Record of Grand Crest War uh, may have a title that sounds familiar to some of you, because of uh, Record of Lodos War. And this is a series of light novels by the same author, so it's very much a, uh, a fantasy adventure sort of story. Uh, and watching it, it, fe- it really feels like some kind of 90s fantasy adventure, but with, uh, like, modern-day animation. Mm-hmm. And the background of this is that there are essentially two powerful major nations in there, the Union and the Alliance... 
which is great. They they have full names, but but everybody just calls them the Union and the Alliance. Great, okay. Yeah, so the Union and the Alliance are ruled by lords who have crests, which basically give them magical power, and the leaders of the Union and the leaders of the Alliance have these two powerful crests that were the that are ba- that if merged together would basically form the grand crest and would unite the continent in peace and at the start of the story the union and the alliance were going to have two of their major leaders be wed together and the grand crest would be formed and peace would come to the land however at the wedding something goes horribly wrong and demons invade the wedding and kill the two heads of the houses, not the people that were to be married, but their parents. And this sort of basically puts an end to what what would have been thought to be the start of an era of peace. And basically, the world goes back to being chaotic. Demons are roaming the land, and there's a lot of political tension between the Union and the Alliance, because neither is sure what caused the demons to appear, and they think they could like they could have betrayed each other. And that's where our story begins like a year or so after that event occurs. And it follows a young man named Theo, who is from a small town somewhere, and his his town is basically oppressed by the lord ruling over that area, and he is trying to find a way to get political power to free his land. And the the interesting thing about Theo is that he has a crest despite not actually being a lord, and during his journey, he runs into Silica, who was at the disastrous wedding, and the two of them form a contract between Lord and Mage, and it follows uh, the two of them as they try to, essentially, Silica is plotting to have Theo unite the continent as a hero to put an end to the war between the Union and the Alliance and form the Grand Crest and unite everything, and... So far, the show is uh, it's pretty interesting. The early few episodes follow Theo's early attempts to gain a political foothold, but they don't work out after a disa- after they are basically invaded by the leader of, I believe, the Alliance, and they basically become vassals of uh, the Earl of Alturk, who is a very eccentric man. Who um, <laughs> I. This is going to sound ridiculous, I'm aware, but uh, he basically um, makes contracts with various female mages and puts them into skimpy outfits, but he's actually a good person and basically gives them life <laughs> skills to succeed. It's very ridiculous. Okay. But um, they basically work for him for a while, and basically what happens is that uh, talks break down between the Union and the Alliance, and they go to war, and the Earl of Alturk is defeated, and the beginning of the second half of the show is basically Theo and the rest of the people that were allied with Alturk now need to find a way to strike back before uh, the Alliance destroys the Union entirely. Okay. And uh, one of the things that this show does a lot of is, like, it goes into a lot of detail about the big political situations, but it also goes into detail about our characters and their motivations and how they go on. Like, it it doesn't really seem to be anything more than, like, a nice fun fantasy adventure with that actually cares about the world that, uh, that is being lived in and such. And it's all, uh, it's all pretty charming. Yeah, it seems from what it is, it's, like, very sort of, like, what you expect out of fantasy, just maybe, like, with a little more, like, thought and care put into it. 
Yeah, I never actually saw Record of Lodos War, but I imagine it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, I'd assume as much as well, because I believe this one also is based on a tabletop role-playing game by the same dude. That would make sense. There's a lot of things in this that seem like they would be in a tabletop game. Mm -hmm. And from the way you describe it, it seems very uh, like, say, a Fire Emblem, where it is, it's definitely not like a pinnacle of writing, but it accomplishes what it needs to do to give the space for these, like, characters to interact in a way that's exciting or interesting. Yeah, I've I've seen people say it's very Fire Emblem-y before, though that may be because of the term Lord and all that, but <laughs> yeah, it it's a it's a really charming show, and I, I think one of my favorite parts is that Theo and Silica actually play off each other pretty well. They're a fairly likable pair of leads, and uh, in a very nice twist, they already confess their love for each other before the halfway point of the show, and that's very nice. Yeah, that's nice. They're not drawing it out or anything. Uh... I, the only thing I've really heard about it as, like, a negative is that it seems like it's very awkwardly paced from episode to episode. Yeah, I can see that. Sometimes, like, sometimes they do a lot of world building in one of the episodes, but then other times something exciting happens. Like, oh, the evil Draculax has has taken over, the, captured the leader of the werewolves, and... We need to go free them, and that was like a whole episode, and a lot of things happened, and it caused uh, Theo and Silica to gain, basically gain possession of that piece of territory. Hmm, okay. But yeah, right now, I'm, and since it's half over, I don't have any real full thoughts about the show. I'm, I'm looking forward to where it's going in the future, seeing, you know, all this come together, and seeing what themes and what moments rise up out of this show. Alright, cool. It's good to hear. It's, it does seem like... It's got its exciting moments, which I think is good. Like, you know, it's not all caught up in sort of world building, which seems to, like, slow the pace down. But it's got it's got enough back and forth. Yeah, for sure. It it definitely tries to maintain a good balance, and sometimes it succeeds, and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Um, I guess in discussion of another show with, like, kind of weird pacing stuff, uh, I am halfway through uh, Cardcaptor Sakura clear card arc and so card after soccer clear card arc is a sequel to the i think now 20 year old card captor soccer series and it doesn't take a lot of time to get you reintroduced into the world it's sort of like you know the the first bit of the first episode is sort of like oh you remember all of the major characters in card captor soccer here they are very quickly introduced so we can get right into sort of the the card capting, as it were. So, um, for the first half, it follows sort of the same, uh, the same sort of progression that the original did, and sort of like each episode involves Sakura sort of like falling into a a some kind of magical disturbance in the world, and then having to to solve it and figure out that it's you know based around some kind of magical creature that she captures within these cards. But as sort of like a a way to make it so that she's not overpowered or anything, what's happened is all the cards from the first season have gone completely blank and have been replaced with clear versions of the cards that like they're see-through, like sort of laminated plastic kind of stuff. And so part of the mystery is figuring out what happened to the old ones, 
and then what these new creatures are and how they sort of play into Sakura's life. Because they are a different sort of magic that all of her friends, who normally would be able to sense this sort of magic and be able to help her, have no ability to sense. They don't know what this magic is, and no one seems to have any idea what's going on, including the viewer. Because outside of sort of small snippets of sort of like Sakura having these weird dreams that relate to sort of an antagonist or, you know, something that explains the magic that's going on, there isn't a lot of concrete information on like, oh, well, this is clearly leading to something. Right up until the end of this first core that we've gotten to, like, just finally have we gotten sort of like, oh, so Sakura has this new friend named Akiho, who seems pretty normal. She she does all of these sort of fun things with Sakura as sort of like a new friend, sort of initiate her with it. But she has a butler who seems to be attached to some sort of like organization of mages that we just figured out maybe like interfering with the magic that Sakura has dealt with before and sort of may have their own plans for domination or some kind of magical, uh, you know, upheaval or something like that. Again, we don't have a lot of details yet about what's actually going on, but we're very slowly getting there. But the episodic nature is still fun. It's still sort of Sakura does something fun with her friends. Something horrific happens, like they go to the aquarium and just like, all of the water in one of the tanks starts flooding the aquarium and, like, you know, threatening people, and so they have to figure out what's causing it. And it's, you know, it's about solving those mysteries, and some of them are big like that, some of them are a little smaller, where it's sort of like all of the all of the toys in nearby playground have been turned upside down through some sort of magic, and they have to figure out what's causing it. And what's interesting about it is, is where, whereas, like, the first series... A lot of the magic was sort of anthropomorphized into sort of like cutesy character designs where it's like, oh, here's Rainy or here's Snowy, and they're like sort of like little sprite characters. Instead, we're dealing with a lot more sort of like abstract ideas when it comes to what powers they're getting, like the ability to sort of change gravitational pull for Sakura or the ability of flight or the concept of action were sort of like the the idea in this in the particular scenario was like a bunch of trees at Sakura's school were suddenly coming to life and being the uh, given the ability to act so that was sort of the villain of that episode and so it is interesting in that it does provide different scenarios with which he fights and it again it's just a it's an extension of the the original story in a way that is charming and nostalgic but i'm very happy they're finally getting to the plot part because they keep throwing in short snippets of like oh something's going to build up and then pulling back on it and then they keep doing that for like 11 episodes oh i know how that feels yeah so it's nice to finally have sort of like okay we have some forward momentum, we have some information coming around, because it it also feels like there are a lot of characters in the series that sort of have an idea of what's going on, but they can't tell Sakura for some reason. So again, it's sort of frustrating being kept out of the loop and knowing that it's trying to go somewhere and that it won't. So uh, with this second core, I'm very happy that we're going to sort of go together and sort of figure out this mystery and sort of like 
put a face to the threat that Sakura is facing. I hope it winds up being satisfying. Yeah, and from what I've heard from people who read the manga, it's, it is good. It still has that charm, but it's definitely a lot of like, all right, let's at least have an idea of what we're going up against. You know, what, what finally is going to be sort of the, the momentum of the story. Nice. It's a little cute um, because uh, with 20 years in between, the way that they've decided to handle this is, well, they've gone up a year in school, so now they're all in middle school. And inexplicably, they live in 2018, where, like, Sakura's, like, mascot friend, basically, Kero, plays Dark Souls. <laughs> and then, like, they have laptops, and they have, um, they have smartphones, and they talk via Skype. And, like, uh, there's a, there's a point where, um, Sakura's friend Tomio, who's, like, pretty in love with her and sort of like her her magical uh her magical identity builds drones to follow her around to take movies of all of her like sort of captures because she can't always keep up with them so it's like weirdly into new technology for really no reason but it's charming this sounds like the show screwing hey we were in 2018 we swear this is not suddenly the 1990s again <laughs> Right, it, it's very much like, well, what if Sakura, what if Cardcaptor Sakura took place in 2017 and now we're in 2018? So, it's again, it's cute. I don't feel like, oh, this is like breaking canon or whatever. It's, it's charming. And that's really true about the whole show. A lot of the music is very much the same. A lot of the staff has been the same. So, it all feels very nostalgic and familiar and fun. So, I'm, I'm excited to see it going forward now that we have sort of a direction to go. Okay, then. Yeah, it's it's nice. If if you did enjoy the original Cardcaptor Sakura and maybe were on the fence about this, I think this is worth picking up just to see how you feel about it. There are, it's still got the same sort of humor, the same sort of like vibe to it. So it, it'll be, if nothing else, like a nice trip down memory lane. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy about that so far and I'm excited to see where it goes. And now, to come back to a show that both of us watched, at least for a little bit, let's talk about Darling in the Franks, because we were hesitantly excited about it at the start of the season, when we didn't know anything about it outside of sort of its basic setup. And let's talk about what it's like now that it's halfway through its story. (laughs) Okay, so uh, on my notes for the show before I started watching it, I said, I wrote down two things. Please be good, and please don't be horny. And, uh, <laughs> I was... <laughs> you could guess which one of those was wrong. <laughs> oh my god, it is... It is, like... I feel like in some ways it's, like, way hornier than even, like, Kill a Kill. <laughs> it's really weird because all of the sec... All of the, the horny metaphors are really direct... But it's also weirdly wholesome in spite of that. It's baffling. It's crazy how, like, oh my god, I I literally lost it when we got when they got to the um the doggy style mech piloting. <laughs> like Yeah! Yeah, that made me lose it. <laughs> I've I've seen a lot of jokes going around that the Darling of the Franks writers sort of fit that um Garth Marenghi's dark place thing of I know writers who use subtext, and they're cowards. 
And that feels a lot like Darling in the Franks, where it's like, they really want you to know this is a story about sexuality. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's... <sighs> so, like, this show feels like it's trying to do two Gynax things at once. It's trying to do sort of the mecha thing, right? Like, maybe like a gunbuster or something. And also trying to do Fooly Cooly, in that it's a story about a pink-haired girl who teaches a younger person about sort of, like, budding sexuality and romance and relationships. Um, in a very, like, I don't know, um, unhealthy way. But, like, it has ramped both of those things up to such a degree <laughs> that I feel, like, uncomfortable watching it. Which is why I've dropped it. Okay, so where did you drop it? Um, like, two or three episodes in, honestly. Okay, so, I can tell you that that comparison to Fooly Cooly is wrong. Okay, so, let's- so tell me about- this first arc, because so I basically just got the setup of the story and everything. Okay, so I also I I did not think the show was gonna be as good as it wound up being because the show takes a pretty big jump up in quality after Hero finally gets in the robot because okay. that took a bit of time as well. Him actually getting in the robot and piling with Zero Two, and after that. After Hero got in the robot, the show became more about the relationships between the characters and how extremely weird their society is, and how Zero Two might not be the perfect, uh, the maniac pixie dream girl that she seems to be. Okay. So, like, after the episodes, after Hero got in the robot, we had a beach episode. <laughs> Uh-huh. But it was the most wholesome beach episode you'd ever imagine, because it was just about our characters kind of, like, talking things out about, like, heroes being, ha like, everybody throwing a party about Hero finally being able to pilot the robot, because everybody admires him, and everybody thinks he's this great guy, because he came up with a great idea to give everybody names, and then they just kind of explore this weird abandoned ruin of a town and it starts to make things like unsettling like what happened to all of these people and what happened to people to make them move it into this way and it starts to delve into the characters relationships with each other and them trying to like work out their goofy teenage hormone problems and in the background one of the things that's going on is that their entire team is like a test case scenario because we get to meet another Frank's team and they're all very homogenized and not very teenager-y at all and all of their robots look the same compared to our team which is full of extremely anime teenagers goofing around and all that. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like making their whole society a lot more suspicious and weird and it's it's all very odd i can say okay i think what turned me off more than anything else is the leering sort of sexuality that it has for all of its characters <laughs> like all of its female characters really like the first episode where that girl gets like her ass grabbed by the old man and then like the shots in the locker room things like that feel very eh. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. More so than the ass-in-face shots with the robot driving. 
So, okay. <laughs> I, so again, you've seen farther than I have. Does it grok that, like, the metaphor that they're going for with the fact that um, Hero couldn't pilot the things for so long, like an erectile dysfunction thing? Like, how how sex is the series past the first couple episodes with the way that they have developed sort of this this sort of story? It seems to be more like that the pilots are have to have some sort of relationship and it doesn't necessarily have to be a romantic one for them to pilot. Like, at least the reason why, uh, why Hero was able to pilot with Zero Two is because he's the first person that accepted Zero Two as not being some type of, like, weird monster. Like, she tr- he tries to accept her as a human being, but one of the interesting things about, like, the second half of the first season is that Hero desperately tries to get Zero Two to open up to him because he wants to try and build a relationship with her, but she isn't interested in having one, and you'd think that this would cause them to, like, have problems piloting the robot, but it really doesn't happen until, like, the end of the first season because it kind of left off with a cliffhanger of where you really get to see that Zero Two is extremely fucked up because of something that happened to her in the past, or rather, her the very nature of who she is. Okay. And in another episode, um, one of the things that happens is, like, a couple people try switching partners for a while, like, um, Futoshi switches partners to Kokoro, and Kokoro's other partner, who, uh, I need to look up the name, hold on a sec. Uh, is it the is it the small goblin child? No, the small the small goblin child is surprisingly the most functional of the cast with his partner. Wow. Uh, who are the other boys? There's Goro, right? He's the blonde one. Yes, the one who's unfortunately trapped in a love triangle. Ugh. Uh, and then there's it's the it's the kid with the slick back hair. Then, right? That's the last guy. Okay. Yeah. So it's Futoshi and Kokoro. They switch partners. Futoshi now pilot pilots with Ikuno, and Kokoro now pilots with Mitsuru, and none of them have any romantic feelings for each other, because it's heavily implied that Mitsuru has feelings for Hiro, and Ikuno has feelings for Ichigo. And during this whole partner switch thing, Ikuno actually suggests, can I pilot with Ichigo? And it does not work. Okay, so so girls can't pilot with girls. Or at least that's what's being implied by that particular thing. I don't think that's the case because I think people like looked at the reading the the readings that were going on and it seemed like while Ichigo was outputting normally Ikuno was kind of hesitant and couldn't output as much. Okay. So it, I think like it's more about the relationship like they have to have some sort of functioning relationship between the two characters like the reason why Kokoro and Mitsuru can pilot together is because that that they have some sort of trusting of each other that Kokoro wants Mitsuru to be able to open up and to express himself, and he's able to do that with Kokoro, whereas he can't really open up with Ikuno. They just kind of work, they're just more like like workmates rather than having any sort of of out-of-work relationship, if that makes sense. So it's more of a human compatibility and sort of a sexual compatibility. Yeah, that's definitely what they've been trying to go for here. Okay. I see bits of animation from it, and it, it does look, re- it looks really good. I think it still looks great as yeah. a series. Yeah, it is definitely a very nicely animated show. It just definitely, like, 
it's a rough first impression, I think. Yeah, like I said, the I think the show takes like a good jump in like the quality of its writing after Hero gets in the robot because it starts focusing on characters that aren't Hero. And even now that we're going back to, at least with this current arc, uh, we're going back to the relationship between Hero and Zero Two, we get to find out like a bit more about who they are and how like how they're trying to you know get closer to each other and all that and apparently like at least from the uh the last episode from last week's episode hero seems to remember that he might have met zero two as a child but something happened to make him forget and also that the reason why they can pilot the uh the things is because they have claxasaur blood in them oh Right, because those are the, like, the villains, right? Those are the kaiju? Yeah, they are. And, uh, there is a very notable graph from the last episode which had the words dino-size on it, and it was a, a rating of how close they were to dino-sizing. I can't believe they all have dino-DNA. Me either. That's right, dino-DNA. <laughs> but yeah, like, I think the show is, like, going to go into an interesting direction with, like, it's not like Zero Two is directly leading these kids on a rebellion against their weird society. I feel like it's going to become more natural to them because they're becoming more aware about the world. And I think that's what Dr. Franks wants these kids to do to kind of like reinvigorate their stagnant society because of like how sterile everything seems to be outside of their little home like uh there's an episode where zorome gets lost in the city that's outside of their little home and it's really sterile and like the quote-unquote adults live together but they don't have like the same sort of close relationships that our main cast has okay like i i think it's all of the characters growing not just Zero two leads, everyone else follows. It's everyone growing up together and becoming adults in not the way they'd expect. Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely hard to say with it with just early episodes. It seems like it is growing into sort of a a fuller story, as it were. But yeah, it's definitely one that like it's a little rocky uh in the beginning. Yeah, I I agree with the show having a bad first impression. And so, yeah, I I don't know if I'd go back to it, but I'm happy to hear that it's developing into something a little more palatable, a little more interesting. Yeah, it's it's still horny in places, but it's got <laughs> I think it's got some good story underneath that that stuff. Okay. And like even what I assumed was the story, which you've said isn't quite correct. There's there's still a potential there, but I think that like just early on, again, it's it's the way that they treat the sexuality of these characters that's very off-putting in the beginning. Yeah, like, again, I, I, I think it has a rough start because it still had, like, the most weirdly wholesome beach episode I've ever seen in an anime. <laughs> like, it saved all the weirdly leering shots for the ending credits. Huh. Alright, I'm glad that it seems to be going somewhere, right? That it's not just, like, dead in the water sort of thing. Yeah, it definitely seems to have a direction, and I'm really curious as to where it's going to go in this second half of the season, because it, uh, 
like I said, it, it's revealed that uh, Zero Two has some problems. Uh, mm-hmm. Some some real trust issues with people, and I I kind of want to see Hero and Zero Two, you know, overcome those, and you know, be I want to see Zero Two <laughs> not uh be uh, a giant mess. Mm-hmm. So one thing I do want to ask before we move on is sort of like the one thing that really stood out to me is the general lack of like three D animation. A lot of it, like all the mechs are are two D, and I think the the Klaxosaurs were as well. Is that still, like, holding up? Does it feel like it's running into production such that they use 3D models, or is it pretty good about that right now? It has stayed true to being 2D mecha animation, which I, which, you know, I feel like, uh, that's pretty consistent with the last mecha show that I saw with this mecha character designer, Star Driver, which had the same sort of designs, and it stayed with, uh, 2D animation the whole time as well. Alright, awesome. I mean, it makes a lot of sense given that, like, the robots are basically people. Just giant robotic people. Yeah, it's it's kind of distracting how much the main robot looks like uh, the main robot of Star Driver, Talburn. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes you just really get into a particular design, you can't let it go. That's alright. So next one on here is one that I think secretly is a split core uh, we weren't that we didn't see coming, and that's Fate Extra Last Encore. Yeah, so Fate Extra Last Encore is sort of a retelling. Well, no, it's sort of an alternate take on Fate Extra. So, uh, a bit of a primer: Fate Extra is a spin-off series of Fate Stay Night, where that follows an alternate universe where essentially uh, the world was almost ended and the natural magic ley lines of the world can no longer function, so people can't use magic that way anymore. So instead, people have gone into the cyber world to do magic, and they are called wizards, and the moon is a giant computer, and that's where the Holy (laughs) Grail War is held. All right. Yeah, Uh, okay, so... Uh, our story takes place inside the Moon Cell, which is a giant alien computer that, uh, just seems to be observing humanity, and it takes the souls of 108 people up to the moon for them to fight it out by summoning servants, which are various mythological figures, or historical ones, and they fight it out, and the winner gains one wish. But, this is an alternate take on, uh, on this, which is... In Fate Extra, it is essentially, what if the main character lost the final boss battle? What would happen after that? And the answer is nothing good. So, the uh, Fate Extra follows Hakuno Kishinami, as he struggles to survive and somehow ends up into a contract with uh, Nero, who is, of course, a girl, because this is Fate. Right, this is Red Saber, right? Yes, that is Red Saber. Not to be confused with Saber of Red from uh, Apocrypha. <laughs> Christ. All right. But yeah, this is the... Okay. Uh, yeah, I remember who this one is. This is the one that goes Umu all the time. Yes, she's great because she is overly theatrical about everything, and it's great. Uh, also, fun fact, she's voiced by Cardcaptor Sakura. Oh, sick. Oh, you did talk about it because you thought it'd be weird if you watched Cardcaptor Sakura. I remember yeah. that now. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, it involves the two of them struggling through this other Holy Grail War that's taking place, and 
all of the uh, opponents that they face are the same opponents that you fight in the game. But because this is an alternate timeline, it kind of twists around like what they've been doing ever since the the Holy Grail War that the previous main character lost. And it even plays around with the idea of the main character having a different identity, so to speak, than the previous uh, Hakuno, who is the protagonist of Fate Extra. And I think it's a pretty interesting series. It's it's very Shaft did a really great job animating this, and it it does a lot of the same tricks that they pulled off a lot more in non March Comes Land like a Lion shows. Mm-hmm. I did notice that it's it is very stylized in a way that like it's it's very distinct from like the UFO table stuff that that came before it, right? Where that has sort of been like I feel I think canonized as like the the style that they follow along with and you can see that in sort of like apocrypha this goes for a very different look to it yeah and i feel that that works really well because uh the the uh the extra series has like the same art person for them uh wada arco who she does the art for like all of the fate extra games and i feel like this is fairly consistent with her art style and also, like, they, they do a lot of really interesting visual tricks as well. Like, uh, for an episode pair, they, uh, you watched Madoka, right? Uh, I've seen parts of it, but I have not watched it in full, but. I mean, at least you know what, like, the, the art style of the witch's domains look like, yeah? Yeah, like, kind of that pop art sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, they had that for an entire episode pair for, like, the backgrounds, and it looked really good. I mean, this is Akiyuki Shinbo, right? He's He's got his bag of tricks. I don't know if it's Shinbo directed. I believe it is. Huh, it doesn't seem to say. Oh, wait, it's, it's Shinbo and someone else. Uh, okay, you, so he's he, like... Oh, I see, so he's like, so, he's doing, like, halvesies, okay. Yeah. But still, I think that is a very Shinbo thing. Yeah, it is. And and it also has, like, a unique art style that they go for for when Nero is giving her backstory about herself. And it's it, it all, like, manages to nail its visuals uh, very, very well. But the show itself seems to be going into, like, theme-wise, it goes to going into, like, the value of, of, uh, of life and what life is and how it, it needs to survive and all that sort of stuff. But Unfortunately, the show is unfinished at the moment, so I can't really give any complete clarifications about it quite yet. Okay. But you are saying it is it is distinct from the game. So yeah. those who maybe are familiar with Fate Extra still have something to get out of this story. Yeah, it definitely twists around a lot of things that you'd expect, and it it does a lot of different things stuff that I like with the characters that you do know from the show, and it, I, I kind of like that it gives you an additional side to these characters that you didn't get from the game. Okay. And, yeah, it it's a very enjoyable watch for me right now, and I do hope that whenever it returns, it's it seems to be summer, that it does manage to stick its landing. Okay, cool. Because uh, it's coming back in July, right? So it's coming back for summer? Yes, but I'm okay. still not sure if it's, like, just going to pull out the last three episodes or if it's going to be a full-on second core. 
Okay, because I think it's currently labeled as, like, a second core. So, I don't know if maybe they'll do, like, what is it, CCC, the sequel? Uh, pseudo-sequel. Or side thing, the, the, the other Fate Extra thing? Yes. Okay. Uh, and since you said it is a little more, like, old Shaft, how, how's the head tilt? How many head they, tilts? Quite a few. I think there's at least one an episode. Few, buddy, thank God. All right. Good to know. Yeah, it does. I I really do like the style from what I've seen. Like, again, very distinct from other sort of fate, um, fate styles in a way that's like, it still is distinctly type moon, but like, it has a much, it's, it's even like cuter, I think. I think it has like a cute angle to it. Yeah, having seen a lot of what, uh, what Wada Arco's art, I feel like that's definitely her thing. Mm hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I also didn't mention this, but I think, uh, Nero and Hakuno play off pretty well off of each other. They're, they're a good pair of main characters who are, uh, who work pretty well together. Alright, cool. Glad to hear, and hopefully when it comes back, it'll be just as good. Yeah, I hope so. Is Shaft doing anything in between then? I don't think so. I think they're off this season. All right, so yeah, maybe they're maybe they're planning something big or I don't know, preparing for something else. I don't know what kind of plans they have going past this because I think they're all caught up with the Monogatari stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we'll see. I wonder if the reason why it's incomplete is the reason why like Netflix hasn't announced anything about this show at all. Yeah, maybe they're just waiting for it to be done at this point then. Or it's building up to something. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But it's cool to hear that it's, you know, is doing something neat. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Now let's get a little weird. Let's talk about Pop Team Epic. Can you really talk about Pop Team Epic? Pop Team Epic is easily one of the shows we watched last season. And, like, I feel weird about it because it's like... The farther I am away from having watched Pop Team Epic, like, I know I enjoyed my time with it, but I wonder how much of that would, like, hold up on a second viewing now that sort of the shock value is gone. It's very hit or miss, I think, like, a lot of sort of comedic shows. And part of that is because it's, like, five different teams basically sending in their own shorts with their own idea of what Pop Team Epic is. Yeah. And so, like, some some parts of it, really funny. Um, and some parts of it kind of land flat, and it's sort of all over the place which ones it's going to be from week to week. But I think as a whole, it has done things that, if nothing else, I'm glad happened. <laughs> like, I'm really glad this exists, because... No other show or sets of situations could possibly lead to this existing. Yeah, the the production story of Pop Team Epic is some wild stuff. Right, this is basically done as more or less like cashing in favors for the director who wanted to put this together. And then it's like five different teams who are all sending in different shorts. You know, B-Cub is going through and making sure all of these things are approved. It's wild. You know, I think that's the best word for it is like, you don't ever know what to expect from Pop Team Epic. And I think that's the best thing about it is that it is unpredictable. Yes, this show is 
is extremely unpredictable. <laughs> and sometimes it, it really gets you. Yeah, so it's hard to talk about because it is, like, skit-oriented. Um, you know, we could, we could talk about our favorite skits, and maybe we will do that a bit. But, like, yeah, it's like... Some of these shorts are, like, made for anime, and it makes sense because sort of the the four-coma sort of style that Pop Team Epic lives off of wouldn't work if it was just, like, rapid fire. Yeah. And they do try to change jokes for the sake of being animated. Like, there's the, there's the four-coma where um, they get fan mail... And, you know, it says, like, oh, I, I hate that B-Cup keeps doing this copy-paste style, this joke isn't funny. And so the entire um, forecom is just made out of copy-pasted elements, including being able to see when he, like, zooms in on something and it gets all fucked up. And, you know, so that gets changed into two different jokes, actually. Um, one which is, like, I hate that this is all based on references, followed up by a reference to Prepara. And then one where it makes fun of the fact that the um, Bob and Mimi uh, shorts, or I guess I'll call it Bob Team Epic from now on, those shorts have like very little animation. And so it's like disgustingly animated for the last bit of it as they do a stupid dance. <laughs> they, they get a lot of mileage out of the, the Eisai Harumasakoi dance joke. Yeah, they do. They did do that three times. Yeah, because they did it the first time with uh, Bob Team Epic, which I think was the best one, because it's just, the dance is just doing Blanca moves from Street Fighter 2. <laughs> yeah, that rules. And then there was um, the second one, which was the opening for one of them, where it's just screaming the words over and over while doing the chicken dance to a techno remix. And then the last one, which is that disgustingly animated dance that they do in reference to the, the fan mail they get. Bless you, Akabu. You are truly the saviors of anime. Yeah, so Akabu is, like, the, I think the highlight of this team, uh, of the teams that are doing this, because they're known for doing a lot of sort of weird, quirky, like, commercials before this. And so what they've done here is that, apparently, what, what happens is the director will just receive a tape of their bits for uh, Pop Team Epic. And then they just won't look at them. They'll just air them as is, like no, no sort of like quality check or anything. They just appear finished. Right. And Akbu also uh, did the classic Galo Sengen um, music video, if you're familiar with that. And so they definitely have the most free reign of them all. And I think that that culminates in their, their Hellshake Yeno bit, which is basically just uh two people doing telling a story through like um more or less a flip book but like this really well put together sort of like flip book gag for like a like two or three minutes yeah it's it's incredible to see in motion it, it <laughs> it's art yeah it, it is genuinely art because it's sort of like they tell the story of like this this guitarist. I think that goes by Hellshake Yano. And basically they have this notebook of paper and they keep flipping the pages up and it sort of builds upon previous pages as like a story develops. And it's it's a lot of fun. Like I I really enjoyed that most of all. Like again, it's it's the unpredictability of Pop Team Epic that makes it enjoyable to watch. Oh yeah, I think we should mention like one of the big gimmicks of the show. Uh oh. Right, so Pop Team Epic also, 
the thing that they do is they air effectively the same episode twice in one 24-minute period. So it's a it's two 12-minute episodes. The first one um being voiced by a, a group of like female voice actresses, followed by the same content being voiced by male actors. Yeah. And so it's it's not like one-to-one perfect. Like you're not watching the same thing again each time. Like there are a lot of uh according to the thing is like there are a lot of improv bits in there where they just put them in the studio and it's like uh yeah just make some shit up we're really sorry we don't have anything to tell you and that definitely comes across because like you can tell that some of them are more prepared to make jokes and some of them absolutely aren't like the guy who for that entire bit just like uh marilyn monroe uh marilyn monroe and would just keep doing that like you can tell I that there's Go ahead. I was gonna say, I think that's because that's Yu Kobayashi doing that voice, because I think she's a, a, a character. Sure, okay. But it's definitely, like, you can tell that there's, like, some comfortability with that between the different characters, and especially, like, in episode two, where they do the live-action bit with the voice actors in the studio. Yeah. It's also heavily referential, so, like, some of your enjoyment is going to be decided on whether or not you catch the references, or, you know, find find absurdity funny regardless of that yeah you have to be uh extremely online sometimes to find this show funny and it has like some voice actor jokes where it sort of like plays with the fact that they got these particular duos in to do stuff like i one they they got norio wakamoto to do it for the sake of like i think that was the m bison episode yes that was the m bison episode right which i think he also voices and they and they have like pretty iconic duos do it like i know they had um Mio and Ritsu from K-On for one of them, and they've had other, like, duos who are pretty popular together, like, in, in different roles. But yeah, Pop Team yeah. Epic is basically indescribable, and while it is hit and miss, it's like, I think it's definitely worth some watching, even if you don't watch it both times, I think it's worth looking at from an angle of, like, how this got made and the production behind it, and, like, is, is this is a, definitely a good choice for, like, I think um, younger kids as well, because without the referential knowledge, this comes off as just like random humor. And for a, p- a specific audience, like a specific age, random will always be funny. And so like, there are multiple levels with which this can be enjoyed upon. And I think that's, you know, that's something worth looking at. Yeah, it it's a show that kind of is all over the place with its jokes and sometimes they land and sometimes they don't but uh, a couple of things that I want to throw out because I've also been watching the dub of this show mm-hmm. and the dub also follows the changing voice actors every episode thing yeah it does mm-hmm. um, but one of the thing I've, things I've noticed about the dub is that the dub does not ad-lib at all it's just directly the Japanese script for the most part I think oh weird okay yeah yeah, like, the Marilyn Monroe bit was the exact same in English. That's a little weird, but I think with the schedule that they have on, it may be a little weird to be like, hey, can you just improv this bit 40 times or whatever so we can pick the best one? Yeah, and then the other thing about this is uh, with the Bob Epic team bits, uh, mm-hmm. because um, in Japan, it's the two guys from Akabu doing the voices, but in uh, the dub, it's two professional voice actors doing it. So, ironically, they're the most consistent members of the cast. <laughs> cool. 
Well, because the only th- the only thing that ever really changed about the the Bob Team Epic stuff is the the one time they did the Hellshake You Know bit. They just dubbed over each other. Like that was the only. Yeah, that ruled. That ruled. But uh, I say this because uh, one of the uh, the two for the Bob Epic Team bits in the in the dub is Ian Sinclair, and he is a fucking treat every single time. I mean, Ian Sinclair is just good at voices, right? He's like he's like one of the the higher quality dudes there at Funimation. I think. Yeah, he's he's space dandy. He's real good. <laughs> he's space dandy, and he's the the skeleton guy from One Piece, and he's got a lot of other stuff too that has like a range to him. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing I want to mention is, uh, even if you don't like watching the uh, the second half of each episode, you need to watch it for the final one. Yeah, the final one. It's important for sure because like it actually has a story between the two halves. There's like a bad end and good end sort of thing. Yeah. Another thing that you learn from this show is that uh, B-Cub likes idol shows. Oh, B-Cub loves idols. <laughs> B-Cub loves Prepara. B-Cub might love Aikatsu. He definitely loves Prepara. <laughs> and he loves, he loves like, weird references to, like, Western media, too. Like, when they're doing the skeleton race and, um, what is it, Muttley and uh, Dastardly show up in the race as, like, a wacky races sort of thing. Also, they're blurred out. Well, of course they're blurred out. They don't want to pay rights for that. Yeah, but also, they shout Cool Runnings because it's a reference to hit movie, Cool Runnings. Yep, they just... <laughs> uh, one thing I really appreciate is that all of the references just got, uh... Like, all of the references just got in the subtitles for the High Dive release. So they're like, yeah, there's a reference to this, there's a reference to this. I don't think Crunchyroll did the same thing. What, uh, that uh, High Dive actually mentioned what the references were? Yeah, High Dive constantly would do that. Oh my god. Yeah, it's it was wild. Um... It's definitely an experience that I will not be replicated by any show except for maybe Pop Team Epic Season 2. And I wonder what they would do with that, because they that's got announced. I mean, sort of. They announced Hoshiro Girl Drop Season 2. I assume that's Pop Team Epic Season 2. Does it really? Can you really be sure? No, but I don't know what they'd do with the second season, also. Well, they'd have to finally do the hamburger gag. I guess so. But yeah, I don't know, um... I still enjoyed my time, and, like, there are definitely bits to see there. It's def- definitely, like, a weird hit-or-miss sort of, like, in it, you know, you're in it or you're not sort of thing. Yeah. Like, there's nothing to get from it. Like, we're giving it a lot more artistic credit than I think B-Cub would, <laughs> or anyone who's working on it would. It's one of the most high-quality shit posts I've ever watched, and, uh, that's... I think that says everything you need to know about this show. Do you want to watch a really high-quality shit post? Then you should probably watch Pop Team Epic. Yeah, I think, if nothing else, it's worth seeing through for, like, I don't know, an episode or two, just to see the the craft that's being put into it. Yeah. Like the like how they got... So, at, at one of the, the, the 3D studio that they, they got to do Pop Team Epic, they also had a guy there who is French and doesn't speak any Japanese, so what they did is they just got him to read Pop Team Epic in Japanese and just kind of guess at what was happening and then make sure it's based off of it. And that's really charming because he like he talks about like the influence that he has from it and sort of the experiences he has that develop in his Pop Team Epic shorts in like interviews before they air. And I think that's really cute. Yeah, like these are definitely a different sort of a joke. They are definitely his own sort of humor to it. And I think that just sort of adds to the general weirdness of the show. Right, it it is nothing if not weird, and I think that's that's the thing. But yeah, that's Pop Team Epic, man. Like, I guess watch it or don't. I don't know. 
I have no idea anymore. Pop Team Epic is extremely a show. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, to follow up on that, and something a lot more typical is, I watched uh, Laid Back Camp, which was a very nice sort of slice of life thing. It was just very, it was very comfortable. It had, like, good moments of humor. And just, like, overall, it's a very well-produced, cute girls doing cute things sort of show. So to give a very succinct summary of the show, uh, Laid Back Camp is just about uh, a group of four girls who end up bonding in high school over their love of outdoors camping. It very much follows that formula, but I do think it succeeds very well in what it does. Where the characters are all distinct, you know, their, their designs are nice, and it it also, like, does talk about camping and the things you have to do when you camp and sort of these, you know, things to avoid, things to do. It has a love of both its characters and the content that it's actually delivering, which is nice. Yeah, I've heard uh, Laid Back Camp was really good. Yeah, it this and um, A Place Further Than the Universe both ended up being like really high quality sort of like slice of life stuff. Huh, I didn't think that uh, that A Place Further Than the Universe was slice of life. I... I mean, it sort of is in that it's about, like, four girls trying to figure out how to get to Antarctica. Like, I think they only get to Antarctica in the last couple episodes. So it's a lot of sort of, like, antics before that, from what I understand. I didn't watch it myself, but, like, both of those ended up being sort of, like, I think surprising takes on sort of this, like, group of girls do things together sort of genre. And, like, there's not a lot to say about uh, Back Camp. It accomplishes what it wants to do very well. And in a way that sort of, like, is very cozy. Like, the music is very, like, brings you in. It's very casual and, like, it's sort of easy to listen to. Like, there's nothing about it that's, like, abrasive or really makes you jump or anything. It's just a lot of fun and the way that these characters interact with each other and sort of, like, you know, try to accomplish things together. And there are, like, you know, some genuinely funny bits in there and sort of, like, um... At one point, they're trying to figure out how to, uh... Because camping expense, uh, camping equipment is so expensive, they're trying to figure out how to cheap out on it, and so they're trying to figure out solutions to, like, not buying really nice sleeping bags, so it's like, oh, what if we wrapped you in a blanket? Well, that's still cold. Well, what if we then wrapped you in tinfoil and sort of, like, building up this until it's like, oh, well, now it's kind of warm. It's like, well, now what do I do when I need to go to the bathroom? And they kind of just flounder there. And so, like, there are cute moments to it. Again, the, the comedy's nice. It's inoffensive. Just everything about the show is very charming and aesthetically pleasing and it's got a really good op that's basically just i want you back by uh the jackson five holy shit like same sort of like funk style same sort of like instrumentation it's like surprising how much it just sounds like that song but it's a it's a banger i i really enjoy just everything aesthetically about this show and it's kind of fascinating because it comes from a studio that like otherwise doesn't have much of a like a place in that like they've sort they sort of did like a a titty light novel show before this and like a boy idol thing like they seem to be able to to capture the mood well despite being a very like new studio with not a lot of you know uh not a lot of history behind it so i you know it, it turned out really well and i'm happy for what it was nice yeah so then we have another comedy of the season uh, that you watch, and that's Teasing Master Tagaki? Tagaki? Tagaki. Tagaki. 
All right. So Teasing Master Tagaki is also more or less a slice of life show. Uh, and it's about uh, these two middle school kids, uh, Nishikata, the boy, and Tagaki, the girl. And um, Tagaki enjoys teasing Nishikata, and Nishikata tries to get back at him, and his attempts usually blow up in his face. And it's all very, you know, like, cutesy middle school romance sort of stuff that's, you know, it's it's a nice and fluffy show that uh, slowly shows that, you know, these two characters forming an actual relationship beyond the teasing, because sometimes Nishikata just kind of misses the point, and Tagaki just kind of wants to hang out with him, and it's really cute. Okay. Okay, so that does seem pretty nice. Uh, Like, it seems cute, and what I've heard about it is that it is, like, pretty genuinely funny. Yeah, it definitely got, like, quite a few laughs out of me for, like, a lot of different jokes. It, it, it manages to pull off its comedy pretty well with Nishikata overreacting a whole lot to everything, and it helps that he's voiced by Yuji Kaiji. Oh, okay, so yeah. Definitely got the chops for that. Yeah, and it's also got, like, a couple minor characters as well, and, you know, they, they get developed a little bit, but it, it's mostly about, like, the relationship between these two and their back and forth with each other, and it's it's really fun. It's, it's, it's uh, nicely animated, well-scored, and... and it's just a fun little anime to watch that I, you know, I decided to throw on. All right, cool. Glad that turned out well, then. Yeah, uh, I guess the only thing that I have complaint-wise is, like, this anime feels like it should have been, like, a 12-minute anime, because sometimes the the episodes drag on a bit, because it's the same sort of fluff for 24 minutes. Sure, I can get that. There are definitely shows that, like, feel like they make more sense for smaller doses. Yeah. Okay. And as we enter the the section of drop shows, I, f- I feel kind of the same way about Mitsuboshi Colors. So I, I gave Mitsuboshi Colors a shot just because it was um, readily available, and I still wanted to know the idea behind these three young girls uh, pointing a bazooka at a cop. And it turns out that got answered in the first episode. Um, <laughs> basically, they decide that this cop has been too corrupt and not helping the people around the area, so they've decided to shoot him with a toy bazooka. That's fair. And by the end of it, they do shoot him in the balls with a toy bazooka. That's fair. Can't believe they killed a cop. But you know what? He probably deserved it. It's fine. But so, Mitsuboshi Colors is about three um, young girls who just spend their time, like, in their clubhouse playing games and sort of, like, doing kid adventures in trying to help the help out the the town that they live in like you know if they they notice a problem or something they try to solve it and so like it's it's very cute in a way that sort of like just kids doing things is cute like the misinterpretations that they have and the way that they play with each other and sort of like interact is very charming in a way that like i think does capture sort of like kids very well in a way that anime sometimes doesn't. But it's the sort of thing where, like, by the third episode, I felt like I had sort of gotten everything I wanted out of the show already, because it is very much, like, the same sort of story and humor each time that it's telling. So while I didn't finish it, I still think it's a perfectly good show for what it's trying to do. It has a lot of, like, fun characters to it. But yeah, it's just, like, each episode being 24 minutes, maybe if it were shorter, I would enjoy it more just because it would be less of a, it'd be less time spent each week with the characters. But I definitely felt like, not really burned out, but satisfied by like episode three. 
Did you notice, like, the characters changing or, like, even slightly during any of this? Um, not really. Um, they're, they're basically the same throughout the whole thing. So that might be part of it, too. Okay, yeah, because, uh, like I said with Tagaki, the two le- at least Nishikata does change a little bit throughout, like, the whole show. Like, it's a, it's a gradual sort of thing that he does, and mm-hmm. it was nice seeing him, like, him actually grow closer to Tagaki, and their, like, the dynamic of their relationship got closer, and it was nice to see that. So, just as a contrast between, uh, this and Mitsuboshi Colors. Yeah, sure. Uh, then, you dropped Hakata Tonkatsu Ramens. So tell me a little bit about what happened there. Alright, so Hakata Tonkatsu Ramens is about a whole bunch of assassins living in a city full of assassins, and there's some, like, political intrigue there, but some of the assassins work for Red Rum Inc., which is literally a cover for Murder Inc., a company of assassins, (laughs) which is really ridiculous and funny. Murder Inc.'s a good name. Yeah, and... Ugh, I wish this show wasn't, like, the bad kind of edgy, instead of being, like, the fun kind of edgy. Mmm. Yeah, like, I got this feeling when the second episode is, we have to show our villain is evil because they have sex with women and then kill them afterward, and no. No. Also, one of the main characters is a cross-dressing assassin for some reason, and, uh... I was gonna say the subtitles use a slur in the first episode. Also, no. Ooh, yikes. Yeah, that I that's always the thing. So here's the thing with cross-dressing characters, right? Either it's this like sort of idealized state where like no one gives a shit, like Astolfo, maybe from fate, that kind of thing. Or it comes with this horrible baggage. <laughs> I mean, nobody else seemed to care, but also someone used a slur. So, right. still bad. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of the thing, right? Is, like, either it comes with that sort of baggage where it's like, oh, haha, but and or or it's, like, an idealized version that, like, is, like, fine, but it's still, like, this weird interpretation of, you know, like, people as a whole. Yeah. But that's that's unfortunate, because I've had shows like that before, like, I don't know. I was kind of enjoying, like, uh, Nanana's Buried Treasure before, and that's, like, just sort of, like, solving mysteries and finding treasure with a bunch of, like, modern-day, like, teens. But it also, like, inexplicably has a character who's like, oh, this is a guy who cross-dresses a girl, and we're going to use language here that's, like, inappropriate. And so it's like, yikes! Yeah. And I know, and I know that Japan has this very different sort of, like, look at, you know, like, trans characters or, you know, cross-dressing characters that's, like, it's whole other thing. But, like, they definitely still don't have, like, they still haven't moved on from the guy in a dress is funny sort of thing in a lot of ways. I mean, you brought up Estolfo, and I think one of the reasons that Estolfo works as a character is because Estolfo is a complete goofball who is funny for reasons other then, haha, man in dress. Right, and no one, and like, no one seems to care, right? Like, the point is that, that they, they don't bring attention to it, no one cares, and so, like, that's, that's, that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, that sucks, because, uh, City of Assassins detectiving other assassins seemed like an alright, uh, idea for a show, especially if they're working somewhere called Murder Inc. Yep. 
And then the last drop show here is Violet Evergarden. And like, Violet Evergarden, I think for its budget and everything and the fact that it's on Netflix, makes it the best looking show or maybe media that Kiwani has produced. Like, I think it costs like a million dollars for every single fucking frame of that show. Because when it comes to um, Violet's robotic hand, it is accurately lit, you know, as far as the lighting goes and everything, and it reflects and all of this. It's like absurdly beautiful. Wow, that is uh, that is definitely something to say. Right, like, I think Sound Euphonium has a bit of that because they're drawing all of these metal instruments that people are playing, but like, it comes across so much clearer because it's like on Netflix where like, there isn't really, like, a bitrate thing. You know, like, it's not a TV broadcast or something. So it is just, like, it is, like, the best quality you could get out of it. It is beautiful. But it's also just sort of a boring show. Oh, that's unfortunate. I Yeah, like, Violet Evergarden, I think, is just, like, kind of a boring show because it, certainly for the first few episodes, it, it seems to sort of, like, continually do the same story about the fact that Violet, as, like, a child soldier, doesn't know how to interact with other people, and doesn't have any subtlety or anything, so when she speaks to people, she is blunt and direct in a way that is uh, sometimes offensive, <laughs> and sometimes just, like, honest in a way that goes against what they're trying to do, because Violet ends up working for this postal service, basically, to I think it's like, it, it's basically their their job is to transcribe people's thoughts and feelings into a letter in a way that they wouldn't be able to do as far as like, you know, wordsmithing kind of stuff. And so she keeps fumbling and messing up in a ways that's like, she's too blunt and direct and can't seem to get the idea of sort of context and things like that. And they do that multiple times in a way that does develop her character, but still feels very repetitive. And hmm. at the time that I dropped it, like, it it has a little sort of weird thing about, like, age politics and romance, where, like, the episode four focuses on sort of the story of, I think it's, like, a 14-year-old and, like, a 22-year-old who fall in love, but fell in love, like, four years earlier, and sort of like, oh, you know, age is just a number, it doesn't define feelings or anything in a way that's, like, really weird. And those numbers aren't, like, I don't exactly know the numbers, but I don't think they're too far off, where it's definitely, like, someone who's underage and someone who is above legal age. And again, that they've been in love for multiple years and sort of, like, trying to fight against that. So it's a little weird in that case. And then it doesn't help that sort of, like, uh, so there's Violet, and Violet, as a child soldier, was underneath this guy named Gilbert, who... Throughout the story, we kind of figure out that he, like, was madly in love with Violet, again, who was underage and sort of, like, has a weird relationship with her because he's sort of the person who made her into a child soldier. So, like, there's a lot of just weird stuff to that story that I wasn't quite comfortable with, and that, along with sort of the the pacing, just kind of killed it for me. Huh. Which is a shame, because I feel, I I hear that, like, it tells better stories going forward, like, sort of, it has that Kiwani thing where it tells a lot of anime-only sort of stuff and sort of, like, tweaks things to make it more like, oh, the anime is distinct from the light novel, so I don't know how much of that is 
indicative of the source. But yeah, I I personally like just couldn't really get into the anime. But, but like it has a neat idea, I guess, you know, because this is the first thing in a while where it's like this has a real like plot to it. It's sort of about um Violet who uh is brought up as a child soldier and loses her arms in what's called the Great War and after getting them replaced with robotic robotic arms sort of has to reintegrate in society and just she can't like uh as far as she has been uh as far as she can remember she's always been a soldier so everything she treats like war she expects to go out again and fight she expects to see her commander again because she doesn't know that he's died and like it's it's her sort of like you know as like kind of a robotic person learning how to to be human and interact with others and sort of relate in a way that's like it's an interesting idea but overall i just don't think it it stuck that landing yeah that sounds like it would could have been an in, a pretty interesting tale yeah and maybe maybe the back half that i missed does make it better but it's just it's it's, it's definitely a rough start for that again absolutely gorgeous though it it's definitely like one of kiwani's best looking things that they've done so now we're out of that and let's talk about a show we both watched we both finished both really liked March Comes In Like a Lion, Season 2. Yeah, speaking of gorgeous anime. Yeah, Shaft definitely does something different with March Comes In Like a Lion than a lot of their typical stuff in a way that's like, it has a very distinct style to it that I like a lot. And it really shines in the way that it does sort of its like metaphor stuff, which we've definitely talked about on this show before. Like, the way it handles visual metaphors is stunning. Yeah, it manages to be incredible at evoking the emotions that the characters are feeling at that particular moment and maybe trying to get you, the viewer, to feel those same emotions. Mm-hmm. So the last time we got in here was sort of the temporary end to the bullying arc with uh, Hinata. Was it? I think it was. I think that's where we ended was sort of the, the end of that, or at least near the end of it. Yeah, that that sounds right. Because I think there was a bit more sort of like trying to get to the conclusion as this as uh, her bully is sort of like interrogated by the teacher and tried to come to an understanding and sort of the the inability for her to understand why what she did was bad for whatever reason, whether it's because of her parents or her, you know, or just a, a lack of empathy, you know, this, that sort of thing is built upon and eventually gets developed right at the very end as we sort of return to the story of the 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 sisters family the kawamotos right right yeah we definitely ended around there yeah so the big things that happened in between are we have the match between ray and um uh toji the 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 grandmaster of shogi as it were yeah i'm i'm trying to remember his name myself yeah so it, it it's it's toji toji soya Right, right. Then we then we had the break for the Olympics. We had the match between um Ray's teacher uh Shimada mm-hmm. and the old man who fought against him. I can't think of his name right now. And then we had the the follow-up arc for the Kawamotos. Matsunaga? That sounds about right. So it's Matsunaga and um Shimada, who face off in the second sort of arc of the second half 
of this second season. Right. Yeah, it, it started off with that, the the return. Right. So yeah, that was the that was after the the month-long Olympics break. So the first one we have the match between uh Ray and uh Soya, who are who is the like the grandmaster of Shogi. Because Ray is finally sort of able to overcome some of his insecurities in playing thanks to the encouragement of Nikaido, his best friend, and gets to to have this match with, you know, the the king. And it ends up not going great. He is <laughs> he is outplayed and clearly outclassed by him. But what's more important is sort of the that after the match sort of stuff. Like the information he learns about Soya and the way that he holds himself and everything that goes along with that as sort of like giving humanization to this character who is otherwise treated as sort of like otherworldly or sort of above other people, sort of this like ephemeral sort of uh, existence. Yeah, he it gives a bit more depth to this character who who you could see as a mirror of Ray as a, as a character. Right, and sort of like definitely again tries to bring him down to earth in sort of like a way. It's like okay, this isn't just like uh, an impossible sort of like shogi master who doesn't talk to anyone and is above other people. Like you learn sort of like Soya has dealt with a lot, and he's sort of like isolated again because of his talent. So. No one really talks to him. He doesn't have like a lot of friends or anything. And he's also effectively deaf, which you get from some of his interactions and the way that he acts with others. Like there's a part with Soya where um, before his match with Ray, he's like answering interview questions and everything. And you see like an accident happens with him where he ends up getting like wine spilled all over his um all over his suit. And as people are asking him if he's okay. You can see that he sort of like enters this mode where he knows that he's still answering questions for an interview. So he gives sort of this this canned answer about things that are happening with no notice that they're asking about how he's doing and sort of, again, sort of breaks the illusion of who he is in a way that's like humanizing to him. Yeah, I was going to say the other takeaway from this arc that I got is that Ray kind of has a gains a desire to play against him again. Like, he found the entire match enjoyable to him. It's it, it seemed to be, like, the first time in a while that he actually had fun playing Shogi. Right, like, there's a quiet understanding between the two because they're so soft-spoken. And sort of, like, treated differently than others. Right. And so, yeah, it's it's really good, and I think it's a good look at Rei as a character as he sort of, like, finds a meaning to playing again. Because he's been struggling with this in season one, sort of, like, why he plays and what interests him, and it seems like he finally has like a goal to reach, which is I want to face Soya again. Yeah, it's it's a nice turning point, I guess, for Ray as a character because he's he doesn't feel quite as adrift anymore. Yeah. So then we have this side match between Matsunaga, who is sort of this new character, uh, along with Ray and uh, Nikaido's teacher Shimada, and. I found this a little hard to get into only because there had been a month-long break before that because of the Olympics. So it was hard getting back into it as sort of like, I wanted to see Ray and the other characters again, but we get this focus on two other characters, which is good. It was a good set of episodes. I think it just sort of like became harder to get through because of it being such a long break 
and trying to get back into it on this particular arc. To be fair, this is also a problem that the beginning of this season had with the show really expecting you to just have watched the previous episode not that long ago. Right. And like, it's not as hard because it introduces you to its main cast. And this month it's like, well, we're going to this side cast and sort of this new drama with this with uh, Matsunaga. But it's still good because it's it's about a character who sort of feels burdened because he's sort of the oldest uh, remaining shogi player f- from his like generation. And all of these people who have been forced to quit ha- are putting all of these expectations on him to, you know, win this title that he's uh, playing for. Like, because he's uh, won this particular tournament so many times, he's about to earn the, uh, he's basically about to earn, like, an eternal uh, title for this particular tournament. And so he has the weight of all of these expectations and other people's dreams on him. And that's sort of, like, the big metaphor focus that we end up going for. Yeah, it it's a very intense match, Mm-hmm. A lot more intense than you'd expect from uh, from these two frail characters. Yeah, two frail characters and one who basically we just met for this match. I mean, he's been around before, yeah, but this is the first time we've really gotten a good look at him as a character. Yeah, that's what I mean, is sort of like, this is our first real look at him, and so we're already thrown into sort of his problems and everything. But I think the metaphors and stuff really play best in this match as it plays into his idea of, all of these people feeling like they, they're standing in a burnt field, like there's nothing left for them to harvest, nothing left for them to do within Shogi, and the way that he sort of like, you know, carries past with all of these, um, all of these expectations falling upon him and blinding him from his own desires. So it's like a really, it's, it's a lot of really cool imagery being used for this, really, this side event. Yeah, I I think one of my favorite parts of this whole little arc is that after he wins, uh, he he goes drinking with the other old character, and he's like, "You did this same thing last year." <laughs> yeah, it's the more I step away from where I had to watch it, I I appreciate it. Yeah, like I like that he has this sort of existential crisis every year, and he he overcomes it with his burning desire to win, to to honor those who came before him, and. To, you know, make everybody who came to cheer him on proud. Right, especially now that he's more or less done and that he's earned an eternal title. Yeah. And then we have sort of a, a follow-up on the, the Kawamotos and sort of the, the plotline that we got before with the bullying and everything. We get to meet up again with uh, Hinata's friend Sakura, who is uh, recovering from the the bullying that she is dealing with and sort of like is bittersweet because it's clear that she's doing better but like her body physically starts to shut down around people of her same age because of the anxiety that she has from the bullying i thought her name was chio is it chio is it sakura chio it might be but yeah so it's it's about that and sort of you know and then it's also about hinata having to grow up because she's moving on from middle school to high school now and so she has to make choices about her life and sort of um, through working with her grandfather and everything, she decides that, you know, she wants to really get into this uh, sweets-making business and really, you know, take up sort of the, the family trade. Mm. I was going to say, there's also the fact that she also feels like she's kind of adrift. She knows, like, she wants to be a, a pastry chef, but she doesn't really know, like, 
how to get there. She had like because of the whole bullying thing, she hasn't really thought about where she wants to go for high school. She hasn't thought about that at all. And uh and what happens next is like Ray decides to maybe help and give her a bit of a direction. Yeah, and we we get a little bit of that too is like a one final follow-up scene with the bully from the the uh the earlier arc and sort of the teacher coming in being like honestly it seems like you're <laughs> you're a little shit because you don't have anywhere to go you're adrift and you're taking it out on people who are more caught up than you are kind of like the people you you're envious of these people because they have something together about their life and so you're trying to ruin it for them and it's like a real shock for the character like it's the first time that they've emoted in any way that's like shows any sort of like introspection or understanding yeah yeah that was something and so we get hanada's development as sort of like i want to be a pastry chef and i'm going to do all these great things and like i've decided i want to go to high school where ray's going to because through all of this troubling stuff i want to follow ray i like him a lot and i feel comfortable near him like they've sort of built up more familial ties in that direction as well yeah i I think it's very sweet that that Hinata tries to go there because she is also scared of being bullied again and she wants to go where Rei is so that way she knows she has a friend she can count on there. Right. And then the last episode, like the thing that really stuck out to me was sort of the extra chapter that they put in, which is this um this like vignette about Rei meeting up with his adopted mother. And just like just visiting, um, it's it's a very like bittersweet sort of thing as it again gets into the fact that Ray inadvertently sort of divided the household that he came into. Yeah, through no fault of his own, uh, he ended up kind of tearing this family apart because of the fact that his adopted father became so focused on him because he was the only one who showed real signs of being a shogi prodigy and that turned sort of everyone against him and really like made the household go to hell but you know this adoptive mother still really cares about him hopes he's doing well and like it you know knows that she can't really do anything about it but like is happy to know that ray's doing okay yeah i i was gonna say i think one of the most striking parts about this whole chapter is how minimalist it's animated. Right, like, there's very little animation. In fact, it's mostly stills as just sort of, like, it's very stark, and I think that that helps the mood in what it's trying to do with sort of bringing us back to this family that has caused Ray so much grief and that has caused this problem, and, like, for a moment, step back and be like, there are still things here that weren't horrible. You know, this mother still really cared about everyone equally and in some ways kind of wished Ray were a little more like her own kids so that everything would have been okay. But recognizing that that wasn't an option, you know, that always something like this was going to happen and it just went in the worst possible way. Yeah. So it's regretful and bittersweet, but it still like gives uh, gives character to someone that we had never met before in a way that's, like, nice. Yeah, it, it's doing a thing that I like this show doing a lot, which is developing in its side characters 
and, you know, caring about them and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked the the last bit of March Comes in Like a Lion. Again, it just tells a very layered story about a bunch of characters and has a pretty good idea of how to balance them all together and balance drama with not always comedy, but sort of like more lighthearted moments where the characters just get to be themselves. Yeah, I, I noticed that like, Quite a few of the last few episodes were just a couple of days in the life of the Kawamoto sisters, and it was just really pleasant and charming, and just, it was nice to see these characters just, you know, being happy after all the stuff that they've been through. Yeah, and even as they recognize, oh, we have all these problems that we have to deal with, it's like, they're finding solutions to move forward through it. And it seems like everyone sort of, like, has found their own solution, you know, or their own direction to go towards. Yeah, and uh, and the show ended with um, with Hina going off to her first day of school at uh, at Ray's high school, and it ended on a a pretty a pretty high note, I think. Yeah, even after a very unfortunate haircut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it it's honest in a way that's really um, nice to watch. You know, it it deals with so many emotions and the way that they sort of overlap with each other in a hectic kind of environment. And so, yeah, I really liked uh, this season. And hopefully there will be more to go. I don't know how caught up to the the manga they are at this point. Neither do I, honestly. But it'd be nice to see more. So, you know, here's hoping. Yeah, I I like this show a lot because it's probably one of the most human shows I've uh, I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It, It manages to capture the humanity of its characters and convey that humanity to its viewers very well. It gives, it's a show that doesn't have any outright villainous characters. Everyone has some sort of pathos and such that drives them. Yeah. Like the most villainous character is probably Ray's adopted sister, but even then they try, they, they do give pathos to like, it's not her fault that she ended up all fucked up, but it, doesn't treat her as like a whole villain, even though she is in direct sort of opposition to Ray. Yeah. Well, so we got three more, and the last two, or the next two, are ones that you watched. First off, being Garo Vanishing Line, which ended, right? Yes, it did end. So tell me how that turned out. All right. So the second half of uh, of Garo Vanishing Line started off with a bit more. Uh, sort of monster of the week sort of shows with our protagonists sword sophie gina and luke uh heading off to find the city of el dorado which is where the uh the bad guys have their base and it it had some really nice character moments for all of our characters luke got two episodes that showed how he has grown uh we get a nice episode of sophie showing like how she's growing and changing and how she's still a 13-year-old kid who's suddenly got thrown into this whole mess, and we also get a bit of insight into Sword's past about what happened to the person he cared about and how it sort of shaped him. We get a lot of implied character development for uh, for him. He's not just a big, beefy musclehead. He's got a strong pathos that's driving him. He's more than just his name, Sword. Yeah, so we eventually make it to El Dorado, where our protagonists fight against the villains, and there is a twist in the show that I kind of don't want to spoil, because I, I like the show a lot, and I really want people to watch it, but uh, there is a twist at during this this last bit of the show that that is high, both highly telegraphed, but also goes in a different direction than you'd expect, and I really like that plot twist. 
and it it manages to come together to tell a story about like how even after tragedy, humanity has the the capability to overcome that tragedy and come back even stronger because three of our four main characters, Sword, Sophie, and Luke, all have had horrible things happen to them, but they've continued to move on and grow, and that trauma has helped them become sort of stronger people overall. And it it manages to do that pretty well, I think. Okay. That's good to hear. Yeah, it it also manages to have some nice fight scenes as as few as they are, and it manages to have, a, you know, some nice fight scenes, some nice moral victories for our characters. Right, as you'd hope from sort of the, the type of show that it is. Yeah, and it managed to, uh, to stick its landing. It managed to give everybody uh, a nice, good ending for, for the show, which is honestly one of the things I hope for the most from Toku series, is that a couple of Toku series that I've watched have had trouble sticking the landing, and I'm really glad that this one managed to do so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a show that I really liked a lot, that it's a it's a good shorter toku story. It's only uh, 24 episodes compared to the 48 that most longer-running toku shows are, and it manages to tell a decent story. One could say a more mature one, sometimes. But I, I really enjoyed Garo Vanishing Line a lot, and I'm kind of sad that I don't think a lot of pe- other people have talked about it, and I kind of want people to watch it more. It's, it's, really, it's a really good story. Yeah, I haven't heard a ton about it, but some of it's like, it's it's definitely a little pulpier, but like, it has more high points than low and tells a story that has a good ending to it. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I like, I like big goofy goofball sword or our characters have really good chemistry together and it's, it's pretty good. And also, even though uh, the, the titular Garo is all on CG, it manages to have, you know, pretty nice CG for, for the fights that it's used. It's. I don't know. I, I don't have much to say about it. It's it's a really good show, and I liked it. All right, awesome. And then the other one is the the monthly series, so one episode at the start of every month, I believe, and that is today's menu for the Emia family. Yes, and I like to call it "What's cooking at the Emias" because that's a lot snappier. <laughs> so this is a fate spinoff where instead of fighting and stuff. They just, like, make food and eat? Uh, it's basically supposed to be set after the whole events of Fate Stay Night and in, from an indeterminate point, but it's just all of the characters of Fate Stay Night getting together, and Shiru makes everybody nice meals, and it's really nice to see these characters happy and not murdering each other, or dying in horrible ways. Sure. Uh, it's, it's not really <laughs> a very, uh, I don't really have a lot to say about it. I, it's just a nice, pleasant, slice-of-lifey show to watch. It's got a, it's only half length. Oh, okay. But it's all animated very well, and the food looks really, really good, which is what you'd hope for from a cooking show. And it's just nice to see these characters happy. <laughs> how How's the actual cooking in it? Like, it does it teach you how to make the stuff, or is it more sort of like... Yes, actually. It does. Awesome. It, it teaches you how to make everything in it, even though it's like one recipe an episode. It, it goes into depth on, you know, making that food and... It, it all looks really good, so it's it's a good show to watch when you're hungry. <laughs> or a bad show to watch if you're really hungry. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, what kind of stuff do they do they make in it? Um, uh, there's only been four episodes. I think last episode was sandwiches, but they also okay. had, like, 
a fish dish. They also had like a, a fancy rice dish. I, this show doesn't air that often, so I don't remember like the super specifics about it, but sure. All of it seemed like pretty, you know, not difficult to do. Okay. That's always nice. I, I guess. Maybe, maybe I mean like the food isn't difficult to acquire. Like it's, it's something that you could make at home. Right, they're not making you buy A5 grade Wagyu beef or anything. Right. Alright, that, I mean, that's always nice. Like, you know, you have, like, Sweetness and Lightning and um, Yakutachi Japan and I think Food Wars where, like, they, they actually spread the recipes that they have and sort of, like, put them in the manga and stuff for people to be able to follow along with, which is really nice as sort of like a, hey, we know this thing is about food and people who are interested in food are going to read this. So let's give them the ability to sort of recreate these dishes. I mean, this was based on a manga, so I would assume that those recipes are with the mm-hmm. manga as well. Right. So that's cool. That's that's nice. Yeah, yeah. UFOtable did a great job in, in, in making sure this anime is incredibly detailed with its cooking. Mm-hmm. I guess it's nice that it's only once a month and it's half length. That makes it a lot easier on UFOtable. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And then last... But definitely not least, it's Yu-Gi-Oh! Vrains, which has just finished its first story arc. And it was alright. Yeah, it was alright. It was alright. Uh, it, it's certainly bombastic in its end. It's definitely that great Yu-Gi-Oh! thing where it's like overcoming impossible odds with the perfect draw of cards that wouldn't be good except in this situation. It's fun. Um, it's fun to watch that sort of thing unfold. The The way that they've made comboing in Yu-Gi-Oh! is really entertaining to watch in comparison to certainly the earlier stuff where it's sort of like play card pass. But, uh, so the series direction for this show is being done by Shin Yoshida, who has done a number of smaller arcs for other anime, uh, the other Yu-Gi-Oh! series, in particular, he did the the one big anime filler thing for Yu-Gi-Oh! The original, the the Atlantis arc. He did the Seal of Orichalcos? Yep, that one. Where Yugi k- tried to kill a man? Yeah, that happens a lot. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, but he did that, and he most notably did the entire series direction for Yu-Gi-Oh! Zexel. And between Zexel and Vrains, a pattern has shown, first of all, that he doesn't seem to care a lot about his female characters and uh yikes in the way that blue angel was treated but secondly that just in general he seems a lot more interested in his story than he is his characters it's it's about the plot and what that means in comparison to the characters that comprise it and you can see that a lot in the fact that like the characters who have developed in season one like go and Blue Angel, they both die, and they <laughs> sort of, like, against sort of what their arcs have developed, they end up losing and they die, and instead we have Playmaker as the main Cypher character who doesn't grow at all and doesn't develop and doesn't have any sort of, like, real character or growth to him. He's just sort of like an angry dude. <laughs> I mean... I think he grew a little bit, considering he shouted, I'm going to save you from our cursed destiny in the final duel. Right, he he does show a little bit of sort of like, he's he's pulled away from revenge as his interest. 
but like as a character he's still like sort of a a weird loner who won't like just admit that he like enjoyed i's company or like it's just it's a weird sort of thing where like it's so much clearer that other characters have been developed only for him to take the spotlight and like revolver is what revolver is is a giant ham and nothing else right like he doesn't have like he doesn't have a lot of motivation behind him it's mostly like oh my dad told me to kill the ais because they might turn on us and then the ais go no we wouldn't and he's like shut up and he kills them or tries to at least and so like we're we end up in a very bombastic ending with two characters that like there are stakes to it, but like not on the character's end, it's solely on the for the sake of the plot that we're telling. I was gonna say I can agree with that because Yusaku literally tries to go, hey, maybe we could just talk this out. You don't have to do something stupid like blow up the entire internet, and then Revolver shouts, No, we have to duel! Right, he's like, actually I'm a bad person. And so that's like sort of the end of it. Yeah, it's really dumb. Yeah, so yeah, it's just like it's unfortunate because there's plenty of potential there, but it just, it's not with either of these characters that they've built up. Like, I'm really hoping season two gives us a chance to care about Yusaku and develop Go and, uh, and Aoi. Yeah, I, I, I would hope that now that Yusaku is freed from his chains of revenge, he can start, you know, growing closer to Go and Aoi. Right, and like, we can maybe, and like, Eyes gone, but I assume he'll come back again, you know, like, just for whatever reason. Something crazy is gonna happen. Some kind of s- cyber conspiracy. I don't know, they're selling uh, faked cards on the deep web or something. But I assume he's gonna come back, but like, you know, at the end, you almost get the sense that Yusaku's like, dang, I already missed this guy. He was kind of fun to hang around. But yeah. there's still so much more that could be there. Yeah, like, I kind of got the feeling for how the final arc was going to shake out the moment Aoi lost her duel, because it was going to be like, oh, Aoi lost. That must mean Revolver is going to beat this guy. Or Yusaku is going to beat this guy, which also means that Go is clearly going to lose, because that way our main character can save the day, because he's the best. Yeah, Inspector sucks. Inspector's a bad villain, and he's bad, and I don't like him. (laughs) He's weird and creepy. Go away. But also, like, it doesn't... His, like, whole thing is supposed to be, like, um, you know, a contrast to Yusaku, because Yusaku's like, hey, this, like, forced dueling imprisonment fucked up my life and ruined me forever. And And Spectre's like, actually, I went through the same thing. It's the only thing that made me feel alive ever, because I fell in love with my mom tree who protected me as a child. I just got a terrifying realization. Yeah. I bet the AI that came from Spectre is going to be the villain at some point. Ah, uh, man. Okay, that sounds actually kind of cool. But because we do learn uh, that all of the, the Ignis AIs are based off of the people who went through that dual imprisonment. Yeah. And that I is Yusaku's. Yeah, what a strange twist of fate brought them together. (laughs) I can't believe that Yusaku, before his horrible trauma, was a meme lord. (laughs) But like, um, yeah, it's just like, 
Spectre exists to be a counterpart to Yusaku, so why did he need to beat Aoi, right? Like, why did that duel need to happen? I get why the duel between Go and Revolver had to happen, because we have to be like, oh, we found his secret best card, Mirror Force. I can't believe it. The oldest card in the world, Mirror Force. (laughs) (laughs) But, and like, he makes like a noble sacrifice, but like, Aoi's just doesn't make any sense, because it's sort of like, I've developed my character fully. And then it's like, well, what if we just denied all that for the sake of you losing to Spectre? I mean, I thought this was supposed to be the point where she triumphs over that because she was the one who gave him, because Spectre was the one who gave Aoi the brainwashing card all the way back at the beginning of the arc. Right, and if you go back to our previous uh, episode like this, we're like, yeah, I can't wait for Aoi to beat this creep. And it's like, didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just unfortunate because like, there are totally cool ideas in this this show. And like, I, th- I still think watching the duels is cool because they show off all these weird combos and like link summoning is sort of like this weird thing that they get to play around with. But like, it's just really lacking in terms of like character because it keeps trying to focus on Yusaku, who's like the most boring human alive in the show. At least I is there to make him fun. Right. And so like, hopefully he comes back soon or he like, I don't know, loosens up even a little bit. Jesus. Oh, also, we forgot about Emma. Poor Emma. Oh, yeah. I mean, Emma Emma died way earlier, so. Yeah, but she also died to foreshadow Mirror Force, which yeah, is dumb. But it seems like everyone's kind of coming back for the, from the, the preview that we've seen, everyone's kind of coming back. Yusaku's working in that hot dog truck now with his friend Shoichi. And I guess he finally meets, like, Aoi and stuff in real life, like, you know, outside of sort of a working relationship. So I... I do hope that season two takes time to develop them as characters, because that's really what I come to Yu-Gi-Oh! for. Like, it's nice that they're doing this sort of, like, mature, more mature storytelling sort of thing, but, like, if you can't give me good characters for it, like, why am I bothering? Yeah, I I agree with that. It It feels like this show, that a lot of shows for me live or die by how good its characters are, and I want this show to have good ones. Yeah, because it does, and they just keep falling to the wayside. And then the other thing is that now that uh Yusaku now that I is gone and uh Yusaku can finally lose a duel. Yeah, thank god. Maybe they could just have a duel for fun once. Jesus. That'd be nice. Um But yeah, so here's hoping for second season. I think there are plenty of opportunities for it to develop better. But we'll see how that goes with time. And I've been thinking about it. I wonder if the <laughs> the recap episodes were intentional at this point because it's like so entranced with its own plot. Like, are they trying to make sure we really get it in our dang heads about it? I don't know. But we'll see how it develops. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens going forward. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty cautiously optimistic about season two yeah. or arc two or what have you. We'll see what happens. But hey, at least we got to hear someone shout Deus Ex Machina. Yep, that's man. And also that one of the cards is just called Spam Mail. It's good. Yep, they're, that too. They're really buying into this whole cyber thing. They're really playing with it, so God bless them. Um, yeah, so that's all the anime. That's all of it. Every single one that we watched. Yep. And, Woo. you know, despite some reservations about some of them, despite some drops, like, even the ones, like, even, like, Mitsuboshi Colors, which I dropped, is still, like, a perfectly fine show that just gave me everything I wanted before it ended. So, like, these aren't necessarily all, like, bad shows or anything. It's just, like, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. And ultimately, 
we came out with a pretty good set of shows to talk about. You know, some are a lot more simple than others, but they still, you know, evoke a good feeling. And so I'm really happy that we watched all of these. And I haven't had a chance to catch up yet, but from the way people are talking about the premiere of this upcoming season, seems like spring's going to be pretty good. Yeah, I've I've already seen at least one good good show this season. Yeah, awesome. I love good shows. But yeah, so um yeah, I I think overall winter was good. Definitely like a good variety of shows that we came out of. You know, a, definitely a lot more serious shows like your Ancient Mages Bride, your Gara or not your Garas, but like your March comes in like a lion, your things like that. And then like plenty of comedies, again, pop team epic. You know, things like Laid Back Camp, Teasing Master, Tagaki. There's a good gambit of types of shows that we ended up going through, and I think that's really good. Like, it's easy for us to fall into the, like, oh yeah, we're just going to watch, like, the, the genres that we really like. But there's a good spread for winter and going into spring of sort of, like, the type of action and the type of, you know, comedy and stuff like that. So, I'm I'm really pumped, and I'm glad that winter turned out as good as it did. Yeah, same here. I'm glad I kind of branched out and what shows I watch, and I'm going to be doing it again in uh, in spring. Yeah, even though we're both going to hell because we have, like, too many shows to watch. Yep. Before we go, we got some fan mail. So I feel like we should answer it. And the first one comes in from friend of the show, QB. This one reads, The author of The Ancient Mage's Bride said in an interview... I was disappointed in the Beauty and the Beast story because the Beast turned into a human at the end. And I think this isn't reflected in how Elias is never truly human. How do you think Ancient Mage's Bride compares to other works in this sort of genre evolution where the monster doesn't need to be humanized, like Shape of Water or Shrek? I think this does bring up, like, you know, a point to it. Like, the thing about Ancient Mage's Bride is there's not, like, a goal in mind where like, oh, he's going to become human at the end and, you know, become beautiful. He's still going to be this skeleton mage motherfucker whose only real, like, idea of humanity comes from the way that he develops with Chisei and the other people around him. And I think it's it's very interesting because it does present sort of this thing where... Alright, I'm going to concede. In, like, Shrek, it's like, you know, beauty's on the inside. It's not about whether or not you're considered a monster. And the way that, like, Ancient Mage's Bride and sort of Shape of Water is, it's like, is breaking those boundaries where it's like, there doesn't need to have to be a goal in mind to get you to be like, oh, I'm going to fall in love with this person. It's about the inner beauty and the fact that these characters are flawed in certain ways that makes them charming, that makes them relatable. And I think that that's good in a way that's sort of like, no one has to change in order to make anyone happy. People just have to be who they are and be able to grow and that's what works out for them. I I don't have anything to say other than that. That pretty much sums up my thoughts on the matter. Yeah, I think I think it is cool though that we are seeing more like Beauty and the Beast stories where the Beast is just like a beast man. Finally, people can sink their teeth into monster boys. Finally. Look, we already look, we've already got monster girls, right? Like and they're just like cute girls. We need to take it one step further, right? I think we should be able to just kiss a mummy man. Like nothing nothing be- <laughs> nothing beautiful underneath. Just like a rotting corpse and the bandages, and I think that's fine. I think that's okay. I do not want to kiss Cartophilus. No, well not him. 
But like, uh, okay. So the dark universe didn't work for Universal Pictures. What they do is they make the Kiss universe, and they make it so everyone wants to smooch all of the monsters in their in their library. So like, oh, it's like the Mummy, but a romance story. <laughs> all right. So that see, that's what I'm looking for now. I think that Shape of the Shape of Water and Ancient Mages Pride have expanded the genre to accept the idea that we can be into um, traditionally non-beautiful things. Then we look at uh, Universal again. We have the Invisible Man. Literally, it doesn't matter what he looks like, right? We can just expand that. Shape of Water? Creature from the Black Lagoon, basically. See, we've already got it there. I also want to point out that I'm looking at a... <laughs> I'm looking at a, a, a list of Universal Studios monsters. Um, and in this list, we have Abbott and Costello. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know that's not what they're going for. I, I assume that they mean, like, Abbott and Costello were part of some movies that had this go on. But I think it's really funny, the idea that Abbott and Costello is one of the Universal monsters. <laughs> yeah, here's, like, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man and meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and meet the Mummy. Okay. Okay, so how- So, I feel like having the Invisible Man for a boyfriend would be hard, because how do you know where to kiss? Oh, you're right. Oh, that is weird. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's something you have to, that's something that the writer would have to come up with is sort of like, you know, figure out how to make it so that they can still be invisible, but you're, you're able to like consummate romance. Again, this list of monsters includes Edgar Allan Poe right next to like the Phantom of the Opera and Dracula. <laughs> like, please. Well, we already know that people want to smooch vampires. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that just comes with the territory. But what if they were like really ugly vampires? What if they're just uggos? <laughs> oh no well we already uh, and we have like things like frankenstein and bride of frankenstein right which is sort of this a similar thing where it's sort of like oh they're monster people but i don't know uh lady frankenstein is still pretty genuinely attractive or like uh, traditionally attractive i should say and so yeah i think getting back to the point i think it's good and i hope that it develops more because even in the case of like shrek it does tell a story of like acceptance of other people and that you're not always going to find, like, this perfect person, but you'll find someone who can grow and develop with you. You'll find someone who likes Smash Mouth. No one- No one actually likes- no, <laughs> Our next question comes in from the Toughest Bean, and uh, we discussed this a little bit in our discussion. Um, Do you think that Darling and the Franks' good points outweigh the fact that it is terminally horny? And, on a larger scale, how horny is too horny for anime? So, we discussed this a bit. Uh, you think that as it's developed, the good points of Darling and the Franks has sort of outweighed its its horniness, at least in the, at least within the current episodes. Like it's still it's still a bad horny early on. Yes, I I do. Also, I want to say that there's no good answer for this question because how much horny is too horny is something that is definitely going to differ from person to person. Right, and so like on a personal level. It's very much about how it's treated. Like, horniness on its own is not bad. It's within what context of the stories that I think is important to look at. And when it comes to, like, the leering ass shots of all of these teens and Darling and the Franks, that's a bit much for me. But I understand that, like, to some extent that is, you know, it is also within the 
the idea of the show in that it is about, in some ways, like sexuality and relationships. So, you know, it it is about sort of the intent of it. Like, if it's just a titillate, I'm a little less interested in it than if they can, like, I don't know, use it to to further a theme or storytelling or have it less. I can agree there. I I don't like it when it's just, this is a horny thing. I want there to be some sort of depth to it. And there are totally places for things that are just terminally horny. Like, um, as we talked about uh, at the top of the show, To Love Rue is a show that basically just exists to titillate the reader. And like, that's not for me. But there are also, like, audiences for it, by which I mean horny teens. Um, Like, there is always a place for titillation. Um, I don't go to it when I look for entertainment. So I think that's where the distinction lies for me, is, like, when I want to watch something, I want to watch something for, like, uh, more artistic merit than just, like, can I get my rocks off to it? That's, That's a separate sort of, like, you know, idea to me. I'm terminally curious, so I will watch some horny things to see if there's something under it, or sometimes it's just bad, because sometimes I just want to watch garbage. And sure, that, I mean, that's also acceptable. Like, it, it's going to differ so much from people, but, like, personally, it's like, I think that there is a time and place for things that are horny, and uh, when it comes to watching anime, that's not what I'm looking for in a lot of cases. So, what I want is, if they're going to have to do that then I want there to be a, a purpose to it, a, th- a thematic sort of thing. Like with Scum's Wish from last year, like it is a show that definitely like has um, sexuality within it, but it is more to tell its story about sexuality and romance and relationships more than it is to like titillate the viewer. That said, sometimes there's a show that sort of revels in a sort of fan servicey uh atmosphere and the content outside of that is enticing enough that I kind of deal with it to watch so it's super suggestive and I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> and then the final one comes from Shaded Spider which just asks sort of what was the best show to curl up and enjoy a cup of coffee with for this season. And so, basically, what is the comfiest show for you? And for me, I, I, I brought it up before, it's sort of laid-back camp. Laid-back camp is just something where you can sit back, you can enjoy it for what it is, which is just a bunch of girls having fun doing things that they enjoy, um, in this case, camping, and that's entertaining in and of itself. Uh, for me, that's probably today's menu for the Emia family. Because it's just nice to see these characters happy, and I get to see some delicious food being made. Right, and there's just no stakes to it, right? Like, Yeah, that too. I was gonna say, I can't say Teasing Master Tagaki because sometimes it dragged a little for me, so that's why I'm going with uh, with this. Sure, alright. Yeah, cool, alright. And that is gonna do it for our show today. I had a lot of fun here. I hope you did too, as we talked about the anime we watched. I enjoy being able to bounce off my thoughts with other people and kind of get these other perspectives. Same here. And so, to end this off, tell the folks where they can find you online. Hi, I'm Zane Zero, and you can find me on Twitter at at Zane Zero, X-A-I-N-Z-E-R-O, and I tweet a lot about things I like, which is anime, video games, and anime video games. Maybe I'll get you interested in something. Who knows? 
Uh, oh, that reminds me. Uh, what's what's your new what's your new anime game that you're playing? Uh, right now I'm playing Nino Kuni Two. Awesome. Uh, okay, so I've heard a lot of good things. What's your what's your thought on it? Like, I hear that it basically has nothing to do with Nino Kuni One in terms of sort of like how it plays or anything, and is just like a much better executed concept. Uh, it is extremely that it has the battle system is more of a standard RPG kind of thing, and it's got a lot of extra features to it. It at the moment it feels like uh an RPG from the PS2 in terms of how much it depth it has to its features. It it feels like back when RPGs could have bigger budgets compared to now, where they have more limited budgets because of the difficulty of developing on these big fancy consoles. All right, cool. I've been thinking of picking that up, but it's also like, I already have too many games that I haven't played, so we'll see. That's fair, and this one is infinity hours long because it has a million billion side quests. Oh, I love games that never end. I love JRPGs. I own so many JRPGs and I need to finish them. I'm so scared. Same, but also I finished I don't know, I'm like halfway through Radiant Historia at this point, and it's just like, oh, I really like this. And also it's going to take me the rest of my life to finish. Hell, I need to get the remake for that myself, because I love the original DS game. Yeah, and it, uh, what's nice is that it sort of, like, splits up into two um, stories, so it's like, here's the original version of the story, if you haven't played the, you know, if you haven't played the original on DS, and if you have, here's the weird version that we made that sort of, like, introduces new characters and stuff, so that's nice. Neat. Anyways, as for me... You can find me online at at Chorpsaway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y on Twitter. You can find me on YouTube at the channel Chorpsaway S-A. And you can find the podcast at Coco underscore Disaster on Twitter. And you can also find us at CocoDisaster.com where you can find our RSS feed. You'll be able to find the archives for our YouTube versions of our podcasts. You'll be able to find a link to the text-only blog that that I do with friend of the show QB, which is called Vanilla Blessing, which is vanilla-blessing.tumblr.com. And there you can also figure out where we'll be able to contact us. So, going into this season, the two single servings that we're doing this time is we're doing Psychopaths Season 1 with uh, my friend the J of Spade, which will sort of discuss the original story within that franchise, since from what I understand, the second season and the movies coming after it kind of come at it from different angles. So we're sort of splitting this coverage up. So we're handling the first season of Psychopaths, beloved cyberpunk dystopia story by Genorobuchi. Genorobuchi, yeah. The Booch, as they like to call him. And then after that, uh, I will be discussing with my friend Devious Vacuum, Kake Garui, the 2017 gambling anime adaptation of the manga of the same name. And yeah, we'll be talking about gambling and psychology and just how much fan service I'm really willing to deal with to get a good gambling show. Godspeed. It's it's gonna be a time. But until then, I've been Chorpsway. And I've been Zane Zero. And sweet dreams.